Someday I'll have me a chauffeur And a block-long limousine EO-11 EO-11 Someday I'll have me a penthouse Stacks and stacks of folding green EO-11 EO-11 It's all a state of mind Whether or not you find That place down there Or heaven In the meantime E-O, E-O E-O, Eleven E-O, Eleven can one guy be I kissed her and she kissed me like the fellow once said ain't that a kick in the head the room was completely black I hugged her and she hugged back like the sailor said quote ain't that a hole in the boat my head keeps spinning I go to sleep and keep grinning If this is just the beginning, my life is gonna be beautiful. Everyone is voting for Jack, cause he's got what all the rest lack. Everyone wants to back Jack. Jack is on the right track, cause he's got... High hopes, he's got high hopes. 1960's the year for his high hopes. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Oops, there goes the opposition girl. Oops, there goes the opposition girl. Oops, there goes the opposition. Well, welcome to episode 38 of CFX entitled Oceans 11. Uh, I am Jeff. That is Slip. Yep, it's me, Slip. You know, what's funny is uh, that song. So it's High Hopes, right? That was that was originally in a movie called A Hole in the Head. So you have a <laughs> kick in the head and then a hole, a hole in the head is a 1959 Frank Capra film that Frank Sinatra starred in. And that song was was a song, a duet he did with the little child actor. And it became like it won the best song of the year at the Oscars. And then he repurposed it as a campaign song for for Jack Kennedy. So we so have, it's kind of funny. We have a hole in the head, a kick in the head and then a head blown off in the case of Kennedy. Right. <laughs> dude, a hole in the head. Yeah. No hole kidding. In, hole Holy in shit. And yeah. Dude, there's so many creepy. The Kennedy <clears throat> stuff we'll obviously talk about that. There's so many yeah. weird it, you know, looking at this whole thing, I just think, yeah, the whole simulation theory really comes into play. There's so many weird coincidences and things. Yeah. But anyway, so. Right. So CFX here is a cultural futures exchange. This is a place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, music, movies today, Ocean's Eleven, 1960, TV, books, stage, screen, all of that. Examine the context they, and the time that they came out, what's happened since. 
our take on the future valuation in terms of going long, going short, staying neutral. And that is what we do here. And this is that, you know, we're, we're talking about Kennedy. We actually did an episode, I think episode eight early on, nine, actually uh, dead Kennedys. So here's a it's episode Kennedy. 11, episode oh. 11. And this is Ocean's 11. That was episode uh, 11. Another weird. Yeah, exit. I know. Right. There you go. It's it's weird. When you talk when you talk about Kennedy, you, you start getting into the, the weirdness. So one of the things, funny things about on the intro thing, sometimes we talk about the intro material, sometimes we don't. But in this particular case, uh, two of the things, the uh, Sammy Davis Jr., very recognizable voice, was one of the theme songs to this movie, uh, Promotions 11. The other, Ain't That a Kick in the Head, uh, Dean uh, Martin, we were just talking about here. Um, that's funny, and we'll get into that, is that song is sung like about 800 different times in the movie. And then in this particular scene that I pulled this song from, he's singing at a piano, like in a rehearsal to a bunch of people who are watching. And it's a full band, but there's only a piano. It's just kind of hilarious. There's like vibraphones and all that. Nothing else is on stage. They just like replayed the same full That's orchestra. the first time he sings it in the hotel room, right? right. Or, or at the... Um... Uh, Spyros's place or whatever. Uh, I forget where he's doing it, but it's either at, you know, where the characters are gets confusing in the beginning. But anyway, yeah, he's he's doing the same arrangement that happens later where he has the full band with the vibraphone, but right? The, but the soundtrack is the full band, which is... Yeah. It, well, just, same with Sammy's scene. I know. He has a full band and it's just a guy <laughs> in a harmonica in a garbage trickyard. Yeah. So, it's yeah. A really a lot of fidelity to Nevertheless, nevertheless. All right. So... We're talking about the Ocean's Eleven 1960 uh, original version. We're not talking about the uh, the later day uh, versions, which my guess is we'll refer to um, at times. But this is the original uh, one. And let me st- kick off a little personal history here about this movie, where it comes into my uh, life. And then we'll get into our usual uh, bits. And we even have a, a special guest uh, who we're going to try to get to join us here um, a little bit later. Um, that we've, uh, you know, never had before, and uh, it'll be fun. So let's see, personal histories. I I saw this movie as a pretty young teenager. I don't remember where. might have been on TV. They play old movies and stuff, of course. It's like everywhere. And, you know, I was sort of transfixed by it. I I remember being very colorful, which is something that I think you're going to, the Technicolor sort of production of it. I just remember it sort of just being arrestingly (laughs) colorful, um, the members of the Rat Pack, I was aware of, uh, certainly. Um, I knew who Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, you know, were. Um, and I, I wasn't fans of them. My parents weren't, with the exception of Sammy, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., I think, was a much bigger part of um, my childhood, um, especially uh, as, as far as the big stars go. I mean, I, don't, I think clearly we both agree that the most important person in this film, not Frank Sinatra, but Norman Fell. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into we'll get into that. Um, but, you know, other than, you know, the, the big stars, it's like I was aware of Frank and Dean Martin and, and Sammy. Uh, Sammy, my parents were fans of Sammy Davis Jr. Casual fans. I mean, they weren't like obsessives, but I just remember Sammy being more a part of my uh, childhood than than any of the others. And I remember my mom had um, the hardcover, uh, yes, I can uh, copy of his autobiography that I think was maybe late '60s, early '70s that, when, when that came out. She still may have it. In fact, I remember it was like this white hardcover, uh, you know, leather-bound almost book, and uh, I just remember it always being there. Never read it, but I just remember seeing it. 
Um, you know, Sammy was also obviously on a lot of 70s TV. We talked about him being on a later um, episode of Fantasy Island. Um, I remember that. He was on every variety show you can imagine. Um, the Candyman was, uh, you know, I just remember him playing that a lot on various things. Um, seeing him a lot. Um, obviously, he was, um, you know, a lot of uh, people would do impressions of him. He was a very popular person to have impressions done. Uh, there, I remember him also from Cannonball Run, which I'll get into briefly. I think you have a history with that as well, which you'll talk about. Absolutely. Um, I heard Frank more musically later on and was a fan and, and, and still am, but my parents weren't. The only Frank Sinatra connection I can really think of is my parents did see Frank Sinatra in Vegas. Um, they, wow. saw, they, they saw Elvis, as we talked about as right. well. They did see Frank Sinatra in Vegas twice, in fact. Um, I asked about this, and they saw him in the 60s at some point, and then like in the 70s at some point. I don't, they don't remember exactly when. And they were like, yeah, it was fine. They weren't really impressed by it. Um, I think they did see it the second time much later in his career. Um, so I think he was not at you know peak Frank uh, sort of capabilities there. But my dad was a big fan of this movie called Pal Joey from 1957. Um, and talked about it a lot, um, not a lot, but on, on occasion that, you know, he really liked this movie. And I never, I've never seen it, um, but I did, look, I, I did look it up and just, you know, what's the plot. And, you know, I'll just start off, I'm not going to read the whole plot, but I'll just uh, talk about that. Uh, Frank stars as a character named Joey Evans, who's a philandering San Francisco-based singer. There you go. That's his, he, philandering is pretty much the description of every single one of his characters he ever plays. Um, and then you because know, he's, he's playing himself, he's playing of. himself, right? Yeah, exactly. This one starred Kim Novak and Rita Hayworth. Um, if you're interested in that, and maybe one day I will watch this movie, I probably should. Well, um, fun fact, real quick about Kim Novak of course, Frank had a relationship with her, um, while filming, and the other person she had a relationship with was Sammy Davis Jr. and Harry Cohen, the head of Columbia Pictures. Uh, basically threatened to fire her if she didn't break up because she was part of the star system and part of Columbia Pictures. And, and of course, they didn't want the interracial relationship going uh, on. And uh, so it was kind of in secret. And so Sammy had to break up. This isn't the first this is the first time kind of. But there are more uh, problems with that happened for Sammy because of racism, as we'll talk about in the yeah. future. Well, I would imagine his whole life as a performer, he just, you know, suffered a lot. Absolutely. All over the place, um, in, including, you know, and we'll talk about, you know, Frank Sinatra's an interesting guy because is is many is kind of racist in some ways and philandering, certainly, and misogynist 100 percent. He's actually pretty progressive in terms of, you know, things like uh, combating racism and anti-Semitism, even yeah. and other things. Get like a weird... Too. Sometimes progressive, sometimes regressive relationship with that. You know, yeah. in some ways he was a man of his times. In some ways he was kind of ahead of his times. So it's really interesting. Complex yeah. dude. Complex dude. And yeah, I mean, and if you hear if you I mean, just the net net, there's plenty of interviews where Sammy talks about Sam in, in the most glowing of terms, just in terms of him as a friend and as an advocate and things like that. So we'll, we'll talk about some of that. Um, in addition to this movie, uh, you know, other kind of intersections with the Rat Pack uh, type folks. One maybe is more obscure to some, but for me, as, and it's a movie we'll undoubtedly get to, is History of the World Part One, Mel Brooks, 
Gregory Hines uh, is one of the stars of the the Roman part of that. And he does a little, um, you know, has a little scene where he's uh, trying to avoid getting sent to the lions. And he says he can't go to the lions because the lions only eat Christians. And he says he's Jewish. And then they pull down his little tunic and look, and he's like, you're obviously not circumcised. And he's like, no, no, no. I jumped and they missed, you know, call Samus, call Samus Davis. He'll vouch for me. That's pretty funny. Um, anyway, uh, also with Sammy, of course, I can't talk about Mr. Davis without talking about um, Butthole Surfers and the album <laughs> Cream Corn from the Socket of Davis, which yeah. is sort of named in his honor. Uh, obviously, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. famously was in a very bad car wreck in California and lost his eye um, because there was like a, a button on the steering wheel. Of like, No, like, it's the steering wheel had this um, shape in the middle. It was like the the center of the steering wheel came out like, like you point. have it written here, a bullet shaped, yeah. a bullet shaped shape. And he basically got hit from behind and rammed his eye in there oh, and knocked God. it out. Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh my God. It was, it was devastated. We'll talk a little bit about that in the history, but yeah, that's a famous scene. Yep. They must have. Yeah. You said it's like, it was a standard feature. They must've changed it after that. Yeah, it's I super dangerous, right? I mean, that's super dangerous having this fucking point that you can hit, you know, and obviously the seat, they have airbags now. Yeah. And the seatbelts weren't great back then, you know, for those of you who aren't alive. I mean, people didn't even wear seatbelts really they didn't wear seat belts. until Ralph Nader cars didn't even have to have seatbelts. And that would come a little later, right? That was that was the whole uh, auto thing. So it's like, who knows? He probably wasn't even wearing a seatbelt. And even if he was, it wouldn't have had a shoulder strap, right? So yeah, that's what I was wham. just going to say. It was yeah. just lap belts back in the day, yeah. which just seems insane that they couldn't figure that out. Uh, because race cars had, you know, harnesses. Anyway, yeah. never mind that. Uh, Cannonball Run was a big part of my childhood, too. And, of course, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin uh, were in that famously as a pair uh, playing uh, dressed as a, a priests in in Cannonball Run, and I just remember remember them. Dean Martin didn't really make much of a, an impression on me back then. Sammy, I obviously knew more about, but in later days, I found out Dean Martin was dating Phyllis Davis at that time, which um, you know makes him more of a hero to me uh, for somewhat obvious reasons. Uh, Norman Fell was in Ocean's Eleven, and of course, Norman Fell. For those of you who may remember. Uh, played episode six episode, episode six. six right come we and knock on our door check it out on. if you haven't already we go deep into the world of norman fell and and then the lesser people around uh three's company including no talents like oh like john ritter and you know all these other <laughs> just kidding we love john ritter john ritter's very was very very talented but but norman fell um has holds a special place in in our esteem um as you know, you no doubt will listen to Episode six. So that's pretty much it. Uh, I've seen this movie probably, I would say, maybe 15 or 20 times over the years, or at least parts of it. Um, and, you know, it's just something that has, you know, always been sort of part of my my life since early teenage years. And, um, yeah, we'll talk about what I think of it at this point. So I'll turn it over to you. All right. So so I me- I've mentioned many times on the show about how my parents were cooler than other parents. They were kind of into younger music, et cetera. So, you know, people like Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin were just not on my radar at all because my parents didn't really have their records. And my grandparents were probably into them. 
but I, it just wasn't on my radar, really. The only, my exposure to Frank Sinatra, you know, I would obviously see maybe flipping the channels. I might see a Friars Club roast or, you know, a Dean Martin or, or you know, I might see Sammy on a talk show or Frank Sinatra somewhere. But for the most part, they weren't on my radar. The way I really was exposed to them early on was just from Saturday Night Live, right? Uh, the impressions by uh, Joe Piscopo and Phil Hartman. Um, and I just had no idea that Frank Sinatra was one of the most important figures in the 20th century. You know, he's this, yeah. a major figure in music and pop culture and movies and just the whole as a as a, you know, cultural figure. He's in the top 10 of the 20th century. You know, really, he he was huge. And I just had no idea. Um, and Phil same Hart with Sammy. Phil oh. Hartman had that impression where he's playing Sinatra and he's like, it's all pops and buzzes, you know, when he's trying to. Do I think a duet with Bono? Do you remember that? Oh, I vaguely remember. Yeah. Great Phil Hartman, yes. And I remember uh, Joe Piscopo as Frank Sinatra doing Ebony and Ivory. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's super, he's, it's kind of does capture a little bit of the kind of weird racist kind of thing. Um, but anyway, uh, and as far as Sammy goes, I had no idea of his magnitude and talent. Uh, I knew him from Billy Crystal's impersonation, Billy Crystal's blackface impersonation, which probably hasn't aged very well. Um, you know, and then Dean Martin, obviously, I was much more exposed to Jerry Lewis. So obviously, we'll talk about Dean Martin. His first uh, burst with fame was as part of Martin and Lewis. And at that time, they were like the biggest thing ever. Right. And I have never seen to this day seen a Martin and Lewis film. But I watched tons of Jerry Lewis films, Nutty Professor, The Patsy, you name it. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I remember seeing Hardly Working, his late 70s movie me in too. the theater. Me too, me too. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> and I, I remember seeing tons of his films on Family Film Festival. So he was huge for me. And then, of course, Cannibal And huge Bond. for a lot of starlets, apparently, according to some other rumors that we'll get oh, into. Really? Oh, really? Oh, really? Uh-oh. Well, they, he shares that with Frank then. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Cannibal Run, where, you know, Dean Martin's doing his drunk act, which, by the way, is an act. We'll get to that. Um, with Sammy and they're these pre preach, uh, they're dressed as priests, right? Yeah, I, priests. I yeah, I saw that in a double feature with Arthur at the drive-in. Um, so it was quite a double feature. I didn't give a shit about Arthur at the time. I didn't realize it's. I mean, Arthur probably might be the better film, but um, I don't Cannibal know about Run, that. I, <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll have to get to Cannonball Run at some point. Yeah, we might have to cover both of those movies because, uh, you know. At the time, that was more critically acclaimed, and Cannonball Run was panned, but I loved Cannonball Run. You know, I liked it way more. Of course, I was, you know, very young. Uh, and then another movie that Frank, uh, is Frank Sinatra, uh, more related to Frank, obviously only related to Frank Sinatra, was, you know, I remember in the um, 80s when I was in high school, I started getting really into film, and I was super into Alfred Hitchcock. He's probably still my favorite director of all time. Um, and uh, I remember The Manchurian Candidate had this revival. Uh, this was a film that was very critically acclaimed at the time, controversial, um, and it had this revival. And it's still to this day one of my favorite films ever. And Frank Sinatra is amazing in this movie. He really is like an amazing actor. And I remember um, I remember seeing this film in high school, and that was kind of one of my exposures to him. And then in college, my mom got th this compilation of Frank uh, uh, on CD, and I recorded it. And uh, I remember either that or I got it in Japan. I don't remember because I had it with me around that time. And I remember um, 
after I came back from Japan, I went on a cross country uh, drive uh, kind of tour with my friend from Japan, Jesse. And I had these tapes and we were we would do shit like we would one of us. Are, I was actually driving then, which is weird because I don't really drive. But um, the uh, he would read we would read novels to each other just to pass the time on these roads. And then we would play music and he was just not into music. Like he liked the Beatles and classical music. That was it. He didn't like any other popular music, but I had Frank Sinatra and I was playing it and we were driving into New York state. And I'm like, I got to hear New York, New York. So corny of me. Right. But I got to hear New York, New York. And he just got really mad. He's like, I'm sick of this. You know, he's like, I've been patient with your stupid music. We, we started getting <laughs> into fights and shit. It was really dumb. We kind of hugged it out and, you know, got over it, but it was like, it was so funny. I just think about that. Every time I hear New York, New York, I think about that stupid fight we got into. Um, and then we didn't talk about this and we'll probably, we'll probably talk more about this when we actually do the show Vegas, which is on our radar, believe us, even though I've never watched the show, Jeff, Jeff has a familiarity with the show. And obviously we mentioned Phyllis Davis. Um, we're going to talk more, probably more about a personal history of Vegas. But I remember the first time, or uh, one of the first times I went to Vegas was with Jeff in the early 90s. And we saw Cookie Jar at the Sahara. Yeah. So this was when the Sahara was still around. And we saw it in one of these rooms. So I just had to mention it. We'll we'll get more. We, maybe we'll even do a show about Cook because we've seen him several times over the years. He's a legendary uh, Vegas entertainer. Um, I'm not sure if he's still alive. Even he's got to he be is, in his eighties. I, I don't think he's performing. I think he yeah, is. he's really old. He's in his. Uh, he's got to be in his early eighties now. But anyway, that just reminded me of Vegas because we're going to be talking about Las Vegas a lot. It's the center of this film, obviously. Um, and then I remember uh, when I used to do a lot of thrift shop record shopping. Uh, I would get these novelty records, and um, I remember getting. Uh, finding this Sammy Davis Jr. Um, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. record where he does impressions. <laughs> and um, the impressions are amazing, right? He'll he'll get on stage and he sings his Tony Bennett and all this. Ironically, his Frank Sinatra impression isn't great, even though he worships Frank Sinatra or worshiped him. Um, and uh, it's pretty interesting. And I remember another thing I remember... Um, well, of course, I remember first saying Ocean's Eleven. I don't remember when, but it was totally you that introduced it to me. I had never heard of this movie. Um, and I remember hearing of the Rat Pack, uh, mainly in reference to the, in comparison to the Brat Pack, which was the, which were the early 80s, like Rob Lowe and, you know, Molly Ringwald, the early 80s uh, kind of young adult teen actors who yeah. were uh, kind of a big deal with the John Hughes films, et cetera, and St. Elmo's Fire. And I remember hearing in reference to that, but I never remember knowing much about the Rat Pack itself before seeing this movie. Um, and then, of course, I remember uh, Dean Martin from Watching All the Girls Go By, the song in Big Lebowski, because I, you know, just like a lot of people, I became really into that movie um, and the soundtrack. And then, of course, I remember Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's Twelve, Ocean's Thirteen, all those. I think I just saw the first two. I'll probably talk about those in my evaluation in comparison to this movie. Um, and then uh, my wife is really into Frank Sinatra. She's really into like kind of jazz singers in general, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, that kind of thing. Uh, Johnny Hartman with John Coltrane, but she's really into Frank and she had his great 50s albums. Um, she has uh, on vinyl in the wee small hours and uh, songs for uh, young swingers. And these albums are incredible. Uh, Especially with no Johnny Hartman, if you've never heard of him, he's not as popular, but he's great. Yeah, as yeah. A kind of a lounge crooner type uh, singer. Yeah. 
Yeah, his album with John Coltrane is like a masterpiece. And I think she even has his other albums on Impulse. She's really into that stuff. And that's not something I've got that into, but I I have really gotten into the Frank stuff of the 50s a lot. And I've been listening to it a lot in preparation for this. Just this is the last time we're probably going to mention that. I mean, we'll in passing, we'll mention that he was a great singer and all this, but it's just really beyond the scope. It's just too big to contain. Um, and then researching this, I've been listening to this epic audio book. Sort two of part, like Little Frank. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, this uh, two-part audio book, uh, the first book, The Voice, which is Frank Sinatra's story up to 1953 uh, when he had his comeback. And then uh, The Chairman, which I'm still in the middle of. Now I'm in the Mia Farrow years in the late 60s, which has just been mind-blowing to me. And I also watched this huge Alex Gibney HBO doc from 2015 called All or Nothing at All that's really great. Um, and then watching and then, of course, learning all about more about the Kennedy uh, stuff, uh, which we will touch on because it's all part of this era, because we're going to talk a lot about this era. But then, um, you know, that's basically my history up until now. Uh, so why don't we just give the premise of the film? I, you know, we, we we're not going to give the whole plot summary now because we're going to do a full walkthrough of this movie, because I think a lot of this movie's charm is in little subtleties and not so much the plot. The plot might be one of the weaker things about it in some ways, even though there are some great twists. Um, so do you want to give the premise or should I or uh, what should we do? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So the premise of this is basically a group of World War II veterans, the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, led by their commander, Danny Ocean, and uh, his, uh, I guess, I don't know what his rank was, Sergeant Jimmy Foster. Um, they recruit nine other uh, comrades, thus the Ocean's Eleven, and they their goal is to uh, simultaneously rob five casinos over a New Year's night by basically cutting out the power temporarily and diverting the power to the, basically doing some power, uh, some wire crossing to get the uh, cage doors to open so they can steal the money. Uh, that would be the Sahara, the Riviera, the Desert Inn, the Sands, and the Flamingo. Uh, as far as who's in this film. So again, the, the main Rat Pack members are Frank Sinatra. He plays the lead, Danny Ocean. Uh, uh, Dean Martin plays Sam Harmon, right? So these are I'm, the first people I'm going to read are the actual 11 members of the uh, 82nd Airborne. Um, and then Sammy Davis Jr. is Josh Howard, uh, he, who is now. Uh, so Danny Ocean, I'm not even sure what Danny Ocean does. He's basically like a gambler, a professional gambler. Seems it sounds like, it. like. Yeah. Uh, Sam Harmon is a singer, right, who now is relocated to Hawaii. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. is Josh Howard, a former baseball player and now garbage man. Uh, Peter Lawford is Jimmy Foster, kind of a rich mama's boy, which is kind of ironic. Uh, he, he's kind of playing. He's, he never was rich, but he was kind of royalty in real life. So uh, Richard Conti is an ex-con who's just gotten out of jail, who is an electric, an expert kind of electrician uh, who plays his character is named Tony Bergdorf. Uh, Joey Bishop is a former fighter, which is really funny because he's such a little guy named Mush, Mushy O'Connor. O'Connor's Henry Silva plays Roger Corneal. I don't think we're really given much information about him as far as his profession. Uh, Buddy Lester plays Vince Masler, who's now running a burlesque show. He's like the announcer for a burlesque show that his wife is part of. Uh, Richard Benedict is George Curley Steffens. Again, Curley, we don't, we're not given much information about him. Uh, Norman Fell is Peter Raymer. 
Again, not much information about him. Should have had top billing. And then Clem Harvey as Lewis Jackson, who's kind of this uh, cowboy type guy. Uh, and then Angie Dickinson plays Danny Ocean's wife, B, Beatrice. Uh, Cesar Romero plays Duke Santos, who is about to become Jimmy Foster's stepfather, uh, who is kind of a former criminal yeah, who is cleaned kinda. up. Uh, and then we have Patrice Patrice Wymore as Adele Elkstrom, and she is kind of the other woman in Danny Ocean's life, although you get a sense there might be a lot of other women. Uh, Akeem Tamaroff is Spiros Asibos, who's kind of a... He's part of the gang, but not really because he is he is a as a as a, fe, a known felon. He can't actually go to the casinos. We'll talk more about that, how that worked in real life. Um, and he sort of comes up with the whole scheme and gets the guys together. Uh, Ilka Chase as Mrs. Resties. Mrs. Resties is uh, Jimmy Foster's rich mother. And then we have um, Gene Wiles as Gracie Bergdorf. She is Tony Bergdorf's ex-wife uh, who comes to play a, a pivotal role toward the end of the film. Uh, Hank Henry as Mr. Kelly, the mortician, who also plays a pivotal role to the end. Uh, Luke Gallo as Jealous Young Man. I don't remember. Oh, is this, this is a, a, what's Adele's date. Yes. Right, in the casino. We'll talk more about him. And then Robert Folk as Sheriff Wimmer. Now, there are other characters, but these are kind of the main characters. Um so that's sort of the plot and the characters. So let's get into the zeitgeist. Now, the zeitgeist of this movie has a few threads. And one of them, of course, is Las Vegas itself. Now, a quick overview of the history of the background of Las Vegas leading up into this period. So obviously, Las Vegas was originally, you know, Nevada as a state was originally part of Mexico, became part of the U.S. in 1855. And very soon after that, in the late 1800s, it was known for its silver uh it's it's native silver. And so there was a lot of silver mining, just like in California, there was a lot of gold mining. And of course, uh, there was also cattle ranchers who uh, kind of uh, came into the state during this time. Uh, and so gambling was legal in Nevada. In a lot of Western states, gambling was legal, especially because of the gold rush and silver rushes. But it was legal in Nevada longer than any other state. It became illegal again in uh, for the first time in 1910. Uh, but then was made legal again in 1931. Uh, so anyway, it was founded in 1905, the city of Las Vegas, and it was kind of a railroad stop between Salt Lake and Los Angeles. Now, around 1931, uh, one of the reasons gambling might have been made legal again was there they were constructing what was then known as the Boulder Dam, later to be, be known as the Hoover Dam. And so there were a lot of workers coming in. So the workers, of course, wanted to gamble. Uh, one of the first casinos in Las Vegas that opened was in 1941 called the El Rancho Vegas. And this opened on Route 91, which would later become known as it is known today as the Strip. Uh, of course, the most famous thing that happened early in Vegas was the founding of the Flamingo itself, which is part of our story. That was founded by uh, mobsters Meyer Lansky and Ben Bugsy Stiegel in 1946. It was built from a mob Mexican drug money. Uh, of course, Siegel mismanaged the casino. He was probably also stealing from the mob. And in Havana, idea. and in Havana, Cuba, there was a famous meeting uh, called the Havana. Uh, I think it was called the Havana Conference, where all of the mobsters, Lucky Luciano, Lansky, etc., came, and they met in uh, Cuba, where they also had big casinos. And of course, this is documented in Godfather Two, um, and. 
the other thing, it's also parodied in Some Like It Hot. Uh, and George Raft plays Spats Palumbo, a gangster. We're going to talk about George Raft because he's in this film as well. Uh, but at any rate, they decided to do what uh, what to do about the Bugsy Siegel problem. And during that conference, another person was there as the entertainment, and that was Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. uh, who is who, as we will find out, was a huge friend of the Black Hand. And he basically was later subpoenaed by the Estes Kefauver Commission in the 1950s to talk about his association with the mob. And that will come to play a huge part in our story. Of course, Siegel was murdered following that. Uh, Lance got him killed, and then his associates quickly took control of the Flamingo. In the early 50s, Jimmy Hoffa, of course, was tied up with the mob. Um, So it was basically Mormons and the mafia who fueled the Las Vegas in the 50s, and they built several other casinos, the Sahara, the Sands, the Riviera, and another one called the New Frontier, which Sammy Davis would play a part in. Um, And again, the, um, you know, this was this Las Vegas story is is just, you know, the founding of Las Vegas in the 50s and how these guys actually uh, the the people in this film actually helped contribute to its growth is really part of our story here. So that's part of the zeitgeist. It's weird that the Mormons were investing in gambling properties. Yeah, yeah. They had a huge stake in Vegas. And, you know, again, they they they. Uh, what do they own Pepsi and they make caffeinated drinks, even though as a Mormon, you're not supposed to drink caffeine. There was a recent 60 minutes. I don't know if you saw this where they were some whistleblower from the Mormon church was saying that they, you know, have violated their, you know, tax exempt status, you know, in in terms of being a chair, you know, a religion and and charitable stuff and all that. And that they're worth like, they have like $150 billion in assets. It's crazy. Well, I believe that, you know, the members contribute to the church. And then, of course, you have almost all religion. Look how rich the Catholic church is. Well, the Catholic church is poor now because they have to pay out all the money to all the, you know, victims of the pederasty. Right, right. Yeah, maybe they'll, maybe they, yeah, it's, but, but of course, you know, we're tax exempting uh, pedophiles. And then, and then, you know, Scientology, you know, so at any rate. Uh, the other the other zeitgeist is just the whole atmosphere of Hollywood at this time, which is the the kind of fading star system, right? Ocean's Eleven is kind of almost the last hurrah of a bygone era, which is one one thing we'll talk about whether we think this stands the test of time. And this was the star system where all the stars were kind of tied to studios, kind of own the stars, and this was starting to change. You know, obviously you had Ava Gardner who is part of our history, even even if tangentially, who was tied to MGM. Frank Sinatra originally tied to MGM. Uh, same with Peter Lawford in his early days as a leading man. Uh, later, Frank tied to Warner Brothers. Um, you know, you had Marilyn Monroe with 20th Century Fox. You had Martin and Lewis with Paramount, Doris Day with Warner Brothers, you know, all these huge stars. Um, that's kind of the atmosphere here. And obviously, you know, this beautiful late 50s, early 60s Technicolor filmmaking, which this movie is, you know, a paramount example of. It's it's really spectacular to see. Um, it's definitely one of the points in favor of the film. And then you have the whole heist film genre, right? I can only find a few of these that really, you know, I, I feel like it's something that's been done more recently uh, than it was then. But obviously there were gritty film noirs like The Killing and The Asphalt Jungle that were heist films. Obviously the first film, that ever became a real hit in filmmaking, The Great Train Robbery, which was actually remade in the 1950s, was a classic heist film, you know? And then you had things later, 
that uh, much later, like the Italian job and these kind of films that were heist films. So that's kind of the zeitgeist. Now let's go into the background. So I'm going to go into the background of each of the main members of the Rat Pack, uh, the kind of the big four of Joey Bishop. I'm not going to say much about him. He was really kind of a minor character in this film uh, and actually has a pretty big role in this film for how recently he had joined the quote unquote Rat Pack. We'll give a little background of the of the principles and of the Rat Pack itself and then go into a little bit of the production and then we'll jump into the whole film. So Frank Sinatra is too big of a figure to really go into his whole history. Um, you know, he's definitely one of the most important figures of the 20th century, as we mentioned, but Real quick overview. So born in December 12, 1915 in Hoboken, New Jersey, you know, obviously he had a huge singing career. He became the kind of the, one of the first big idols, teen idols, uh, working with Jimmy Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey in the 40s. And then as, as a solo artist, he got a film um, deal with MGM, uh, you know, with some forgettable movies like <laughs> The Kissing Bandit, where he plays kind of a Zorro figure that I, I kind of want to see that just for how terrible it must be. But then, he, you know, it was more popular stuff like his musicals Anchors Away and On the Town with Gene Kelly. Now, famously in 1948, he was married, but he had an affair with Ava Gardner. Eventually, he would divorce his wife and marry her. Um, this tanked his career. And just in general, his career had taken a nosedive. He, his movies weren't uh, popular. So this is really important. In 1951, um, casino owner and mobster Mo Dalitz had got him a gig at the Desert Inn, one of our casinos in the movie. And then in 1952, he's given a 1% ownership stake of the Sands. Later, that would be 9%. And also uh, made a deal with the owners to play only at the Sands. And he would he would basically be exclusively at the Sands for the next 15 years. Um, and he never forgot about how these mafioso guys had helped him during this bad time in his career. So that's why he would always stay allegiant to them, which would kind of be, a, you know, his undoing in a way. Uh, in 1953, he has a huge comeback by playing uh, uh, Private Angelo Maggio in Here to Eternity, from Here to Eternity, won Best Supporting Actor Award. Uh, he's obviously a natural that, great actor. That was fictionalized in the first Godfather movie about how he got that role, right? That yeah, that's scene. completely yeah. that's completely yeah. a myth. Yeah, that none of that happened with the mafia. They didn't. Uh, he actually got the role because Ava Gardner convinced Harry Cohn of Columbia uh, to to hire him, that, that she was one of the people who convinced him. And then when he auditioned, it was still between him and Eli Wallach. Uh, but Eli Wallach was kind of a tough looking guy. And Frank is such a skinny little guy. He just fit the part better. Yeah. And he was good. Uh, you know, obviously he was good enough to win a best supporting. This completely turned his career around. Around the same time, he, he got a deal with Capitol Records and started making this classical albums that were massive. So he had this huge comeback. Um, and he was in a bunch of other films. Now, the first film, one of the first films he did after this was really, we just have to mention it, even though it's a minor film called Suddenly. In that film, he actually plays an assassin who uh, him and a group of other guys kind of uh, do this home invasion on this home and they get in this home to assassinate the president. Crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, that is just insane. He actually tried to get the film uh, kind of banned or, or stopped from being released uh, after or after Kennedy was assassinated because he was so mortified that he played this role. Uh, and he was also in with The Man with the Golden Gun, again, nominated for Academy Award. You mentioned Pal Joey, Guys and Dolls. There were a bunch of films, and they were mostly successful during this time. Uh, and then, of course, he also did things for Las Vegas during this time. So he was playing The Sands. He was drawing people to Vegas. He, you know, 
him and the Rat Pack would have a huge impact on people coming to Vegas uh, because they were so popular at this time. And he would do stuff like at the opening of the Dunes, he dressed in like a Maharaja outfit and, you know, rode in on an elephant and shit like that. I mean, these mafia guys would be like, Frank, come do this thing to promote our new casino. And he would jump to do it. So and that he would be associated with Vegas forever. Like even in the early 80s, you remember those commercials he did with uh, uh, Wynn? You know, where it's like, hey, don't forget the towels, you know, for like, uh, do you remember those commercials? Well, like, I mean, he what? was, Vegas wouldn't be what it is without him. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have been as popular without him. He was so inextricably tied to it. Yeah. Um, and he just always loved it. You know, he would just always go there on, on a, you know, all the time. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's some dark times, which we'll talk about in the aftermath of things. But let's jump to Dean Martin. So Dean Martin was born Dino Paul Crochetti on June 7, 1917 in Steubenville, Ohio. He started out as a, he actually was an amateur prize fighter for a while. And then he started out as a crooner, very influenced by Bing Crosby and Perry Como, which is funny because there's a joke about that in the movie. Uh, he started working at the 500 Club, uh, another club that Frank Sinatra sang at many times in 1948. And Another uh, young comedian named Jerry Lewis was working there, and they both kind of had this spontaneous act that was very influential on what the Rat Pack would be doing in Vegas later uh, that became massive instantly. And they started touring the country. They even played the Flamingo itself in the 19, late 40s. Um, and Frank had played shows with them early on, so he kind of got to know them a little bit. Uh, they they became film stars. They got a contract with Paramount and became the highest grossing uh basically the highest grossing, the biggest box office draw of the time. Uh, they broke up in 1956. Dean was just, you know, Jerry Lewis far outshone him uh, in a lot of ways, and he kind of wanted to break free. He was uh, becoming a successful singer, and he was on Frank's label at Capitol, but he wanted to break out of the uh, Jerry Lewis kind of uh, shadow. Uh, and uh he ended up working with Frank Sinatra on a film called Some Came Running. It was actually by the same author who wrote From Here to Eternity. And him, uh, Frank, and Shirley MacLaine would kind of formed a proto-rat pack and were partying every night and stuff uh, after shooting. Anytime these guys made a movie, it was like shoot during the day. And Frank never wanted to do multiple takes. He just wanted to get in and get out of there. And uh, they would just stay up all night drinking. Yeah. Except for Dean Martin did not drink. He would go to bed early, which, again, I have a hard time believing because he just looks all drunk. <laughs> you know, he, he looks he's singing. He's all because he's very kind of sun. He he yeah. got a lot of sun. Basically, even Jerry Lewis said Jerry Lewis did all the work, all the writing of their routines. And Dean would just play golf. Yeah. He, he was actually a really good golfer and he would just get, he would go to bed early and play golf. And half the time when he was drinking on stage, it was like apple juice. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me. I was really shocked by that. So anyway, uh, back cutting to Sammy Davis Jr. So Sammy Davis Jr. was younger than these guys. He was born December 8th, uh, 1925 in New York City. Uh, he was an entertainer almost from birth. Uh, he was a member of a group called the Will Mastin Trio. Um, uh, another member of the trio was Sammy Davis Sr., his father. Uh, he was an amazing dancer, singer, and impressionist, and an expert quick draw with a gun. Uh, he, you can see footage of him doing this incredible, these incredible gun tricks, like Western according, gun tricks. By the way, according to Angie Dickinson, JFK was also a quick draw in a different <laughs> way. <laughs> we'll talk about that. So 
the way that Sammy Davis Jr. comes into the story is that Frank Sinatra in the 40s uh, was quite progressive in a lot of ways. And he basically insisted that every time he went on stage, he had a, one, at least one opening act that was black, that was African-American. And so the Will Maston Trio was one of these. And Sammy uh, was a total uh, Frank Sinatra fanboy. He loved him and they became friends at this time. Sammy also played at the New Frontier Casino in the early 1950s, but when he played, he wasn't allowed to stay at the casino. He actually had to go stay on this other ghetto side of town, the west side of Las Vegas in the African-American kind of area. Um, Frank would do a lot to change this um, to his credit. Now, uh, Jeff mentioned in November 1954 is when Sammy had his car accident and lost his eye. Uh, after that, Frank actually brought him to his San, uh, Palm Springs home and he recovered there. Sammy recovered there and Frank kind of talked him into just keeping keep keeping things going. So that's Sammy's introduction to the to the crew. Um, and then Peter Lawford. So Peter Lawford was born in September 7th, uh, September 7th, 1923 in London. He was actually a, a kind of his parents were Lord and Lady Lawford, and he was so he's kind of royalty, but he was one of these guys who was poor royalty. So he had the they had the title, but no money. So they would they were kind of leaving a nomadic, leading a nomadic life. Uh, but eventually he wound up uh going to Hollywood and becoming a contract leading man at MGM at the same time as Frank Sinatra. And they were actually in a film together called It Happened in Brooklyn. And kind of became acquainted with each other. They had a falling out. Uh, Lawford had dated Ava Gardner. Uh, Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra basically fucked everybody. Yeah, I mean, th- it's crazy how much all, all of these. You mentioned Dean Martin with Phyllis Davis. It's crazy how much all these actors, these guys. I mean, just imagine being like 30 years old and you're like, look at all of the Hollywood stars, the female stars. And you could just have be with all of them. That's how Frank was. Yeah. Anybody he wanted to be with, he was. You know, Marilyn Monroe, Kim Novak, you name one. He was probably with her at one point or other. And so Ava and Frank cheated on each other a lot. But she had had an affair with Lawford before, so he was jealous. And they had had some kind of lunch that was planned by, like, a publicity person. And so it was a misunderstanding, but um, Frank basically stopped talking to Lawford for a while. Lawford married into the Kennedys in 1954. He married uh, Jack's uh, sister, Pat Kennedy. Um, And soon after that, uh, you know, around 56, when Kennedy refused the kind of refused to be um, Adlai Stevenson's vice presidential nominee because he really saw 1960 coming up. I didn't want to be he knew Ike was going to win in a landslide. Uh, Joe Kennedy, his father, really wanted Lawford to get Frank Sinatra into the Kennedy camp. Uh, to kind of shill for Kennedy. So that's how the two kind of got together again, because Frank Sinatra also was enamored of Kennedy, as we'll find out. So that's those are the kind of main members of the Rat Pack. I mean, as far as uh, Joey Bishop, he kind of came into the picture later. Uh, he, right before Ocean's Eleven filmed, uh, Frank Sinatra was given a ro- roast by the Fire- Friars Club, and Joey was one of the comedians there. And so Frank really took to him, and so he kind of brought him in. As far as the director, Lewis Milestone, he was born Lib Milstein on September 30th, 19, uh, 1895 in Russia. So he was, a by this time, he was a real veteran filmmaker, almost ready to retire. Uh, he is most known for the 1930 film All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which won the Best Picture and is widely recognized as one of the greatest war films ever made. It was a film so powerful that people at the time said it should get the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Uh, he also directed uh, the classic films, The Front Page and Of Mice and Men, among many others. He was quite distinguished. Uh, he was targeted by the um, House on an American Activities Committee for his leftist views and the fact that he was from Russia in the early 50s. But he managed to escape the blacklist. And by the time of Ocean's Eleven, he was mainly kind of this director for hire. They just needed, you know, needed someone competent. Really, Sinatra was kind of the leader of this film. Anytime Sinatra was on a film in these days, he was really kind of the director. Um, so, but Sinatra does credit um, Milestone with coming up with the twist ending of the film, which is probably one of its stronger points. Now, as far as the Rat Pack goes, so what is the Rat Pack? So originally the Rat Pack was actually called the Holmby Hills Rat Pack, and it was actually led by Humphrey Bogart. So it was a totally different Rat Pack. What we're talking about is the one of the second generation Rat Pack. But Frank Sinatra was a huge Bogart acolyte and also had a brief relationship with Lauren Bacall after Bogey's death. Um, but anyways, the the, ter the quote Rat Pack comes from uh, Lauren Bacall, who when Humphrey Bogart would never wanted to go out, but he always wanted people to come to him. So we, a lot of actors would kind of come to his house and hang out. And Lauren Bacall saw them and said, you all look like a real Rat Pack. And that's where the term comes from. Original members included Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, Tony Curtis, Janet Lee, David Niven. So they were all um, friends of Dorothy, technically. Uh, yeah. Frank actually had an affair with Judy Garland, too. Yeah. So oh, crazy. Well, and well, and actually, not? yeah, yeah. Uh, at any rate, um, so the second iteration of the Rat Pack was what we're talking about when we talk about Ocean's Eleven. And uh, they also became known as the Klan, which um, Frank hated the uh, the name Rat Pack. But of course, Sammy wasn't too in fond of the term the Klan. I wonder for why. For obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and they what they started to do in Vegas, um, especially during the filming of Ocean's Eleven, was they put on these comedy shows where basically Vegas would say, signs on in Vegas would say, maybe Sammy, maybe Dean, maybe Frank because they would show up at any time and just do a show. And so one of them would actually be doing the show and the others would just jump on stage and join them for this crazy improv comedy act they called The Summit. And Bishop would come and MC. They would do things like a cart would be brought up on stage and Dean would say, oh, they brought us dinner. And they they pull off the um, a blade, you know, a kind of sheet over the a tablecloth off the cart and it was just full of booze bottles. And some of them would really drink they also had their own kind of hipster dialect, which doesn't really make sense because the terms would just change meaning depending on how they were used. So they had a term Clyde, which meant it was actually a term introduced to Frank by Natalie Wood, who had they had used it as a slang for dick. Like hmm. they would say Elvis Presley was a real Clyde because, of course, Frank hated rock and roll. But then they would also say like, hey, pass me the Clyde. Like if they're passing someone a bottle of booze, pass me the Clyde. So it would just be Chester was just a nickname for anyone. Like, hey, listen, Chester, you better do this. Uh, Charlie was usually a neck. Charlie or Harb was usually a negative nickname. Like he's a real hard, like he's a real square. And then they'd say things like, hello, when a beautiful <laughs> girl walked in. So very, uh, very funny stuff. Um and we'll we'll get to some of the snappy dialogue in this movie because again it's one of the high points. Now, as far as the film itself, the idea for the for the story was given to um, Peter Lawford uh, by an, a small time director named Gilbert Kay who'd heard it from a gas station attendant. And in 1958, he told Frank about it, and Frank was really in interested in the idea. 
and Lawford was already back in Frank's good graces because of the Kennedy connection. Uh, during the filming, they would shoot during the day and didn't do the summit shows at night, staying up all night. Uh, Frank would never do more than one take, and it was hard to even get them to show up. Uh, most of the time, they could could not get everyone on set at once. Uh, it was, so that was a challenge for the director, but he kind of just did, you know, his his uh, his job, right? So it's funny, though. During this time, as I mentioned, Frank did a lot for Sammy uh, as far as the racial prejudice went. But then on these summit stages, on the summit shows, they would they would really denigrate him racially, too. So they called him Smokey, not only because he smoked a lot. They all smoked. Um, not only because he smoked a lot, but because of the color of his skin. And then Dean Martin would do a thing where he would pick up Sammy, who was very, you know, 5'3". You uh, pick up Sammy and say, I'd like to thank the NAACP for this award. Uh, and they would do things there's like... There's videos of that you can find. Yeah, there's that. videos. And he would say, like, you could, you know, uh, Sammy would put his arm around Dean and Dean would say, oh, you know, you can sing with me, but don't touch me. Like, really stuff that does not age well let's put it that way. And there's a moment in this film that kind of has some of that. So I thought I'd mention that. Of course... One of the most critical things during this time was that this was uh, right when Kennedy uh, was running for president and he actually visited the set. He actually came to one of the summit shows and hung out with the guys. And I think it was during this time that um, not only did Frank introduce Kennedy to Angie Dickinson, who both of them had affairs with, but also Judith Campbell, who both of them had affairs with. Of course, Judith Campbell also was having an affair with Frank's associate, uh, the mobster Chicago boss, uh, Sam Giancana. So that's what's crazy about this time. So we're going to probably be mentioning that stuff a bit here. Yeah, busy, uh, busy gals. Yeah. Now, as far as the the film was, as far as after the film wrapped, uh you know, it was, it was not a critical success. It got hey, mixed hang reviews. On, hang on. I think we're getting a message. All right. Hang on. We're getting a message here. What's coming? What's coming on? Do you hear that? There's some weird music. I hear a wind blowing. Yeah. It's like some creepy. I think we're being summoned from the spirit world. Oh, we are interesting. Also, uh, we are also delighted to have in our audience the brightest. We get the feeling we don't need Broadway what are you, sick or something? The brightest man in the political world in this country or the other country today. And I personally feel I'm going to visit him in that house one day very soon. I'm going to be in the outhouse. Senator John Kennedy from the great state of Massachusetts. Ira, it's me, the ghost of JFK. I'm proud to be here on the Sea of Tranquility podcast. Uh, sea no, of Tranquility? No, this is CFX, <laughs> Mr. President. Awesome, this is, awesome. <laughs> this, is, this is CFX. I think you're in the wrong place. Ira, I'll hang out here. Wow. Oh. So everyone, our podcast has been is being haunted now. We have uh, brought forth the ghost of JFK. So the, we have our special guest, the ghost of JFK. So uh, uh, welcome, Mr. Uh, President. Yeah, it's a real honor uh, that, that you're here. Ira, I'm just going to hang out and look at Angie. 
All right. Great. All right. Great. So we'll probably be hearing from JFK later in the podcast. But as for the reception of this film, so critical reaction was mixed, uh, but it was a box office smash. It was a huge hit and it was one of the top 10 grossing films of 1960. Uh, In the aftermath, okay, the next, uh, the next height uh, after this, the Rat Pack would pull off uh, another heist, which is the stealing of the 1960 presidential election for JFK. Uh, Frank got Sam Giancana's help in winning the crucial West Virginia primary for Kennedy. Uh, and uh, later he would win the crucial Chicago districts, uh, you know, uh, for Kennedy, which would, you know, involve dead people voting. Yeah, right. And uh, I, I just want to thank all the Dago mobsters for the obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think this was in hopes that Robert Kennedy, who was, uh, part of the Kefauver Commission and who was going after the mafia and Jimmy Hoffa uh, would back off. Of course, we know that didn't happen. Uh, and then, you know, at the Democratic Convention, Frank and Sammy and other celebrities were brought on to sing uh, the national anthem. Uh, and Sammy was was booed uh, by the mm. Mississippi delegation because no, he was involved uh, with Swedish actress Maya Britt. He had married her. And obviously, it was an interracial marriage, so they booed him, and it was really terrible. Uh, so after Ocean's Wrap, uh, Sinatra and his manager uh, and a few others, secret partner Sam Giancana, because, of course, the gangsters weren't allowed to own casinos, even though they all did secretly, uh, according to Nevada law, bought the Calneva Casino in Lake Tahoe. And in 1963, after it was discovered that Giancana had stayed there in violation of Nevada's, they're called the Black Books Laws, and so criminals can't own properties in Vegas, even though they all did secretly. And probably still uh, do, right? Sinatra was uh, stripped of his gambling license, and he also lost his sands points, and he was unable to uh, manage the Calneva. He had to lease it out. So that had happened after that. Um, Now, another thing that had happened after this was in 1962, uh, Sinatra was told that Kennedy was visiting on his West Coast. Uh, He was doing a tour of the West Coast to do speeches and things. And um, he was going to stay at Sinatra's uh, house in Palm Springs. So Sinatra put all this money into renovations, including building a helipad so that Kennedy's uh, helicopter could land there. But then Robert Kennedy, uh, who had discovered um, Kennedy's relationship with Judith Campbell and the whole love triangle with Sam Giancana, uh, told the president to cancel because of Frank's connections to Sam Giancana. And so uh, he ended up staying at Bing Crosby's house, which was (laughs) really pissed uh, Frank off, supposedly. uh, And then the person who was actually supposed to tell uh, Frank that Kennedy wasn't going to show up was Lawford. Era, so Lawford, go tell Frank, fuck off. Yeah, they really, they really just pushed Lawford around. And and he basically had to tell Frank, and Frank never forgave him. They never spoke again. To Lawford? Uh, he never forgave To Lawford. Lawford. Wow. He never forgave Lawford, yeah. For that. Even though Lawford was just the bearer of bad news. Yeah, the messenger. Um, Frank never said anything bad about Kennedy after that. But he did supposedly take a sledgehammer to the helipad. Frank would get into rages, like if he didn't like something, like later in the 60s, whenever he heard Light My Fire, when Light My Fire was huge on the radio, he would just like throw the radio through <laughs> fucking window. Well, like that's he would understandable. Just, yeah, he would just tear up, like if he didn't like a song and he saw the sheep, he'd just tear it up in a tam- tantrum. He was just super manic depressive. 
So, uh, and then, yeah, in 1963, so after that uh, happened, uh, this isn't widely known, but Frank used his expertise that he had gained uh, in the film Suddenly and the Manchurian Candidate. Uh, he conspired with Sam Giancana to assassinate JFK. So that's unknown, but uh, yeah. Uh, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> just a joke he didn't do it and uh as to who did you know we don't know but the mafia the cia the you know maybe oswald acted alone that's i still think that's true i just think there's there's a lot of weird coincidences during this time it's just such a weird time it almost seems like we do live in a simulation now the rat pack did make other films none of them is noteworthy as this so in 1962 uh before Lawford was kind of kicked out of the of the club, they made Sergeants Three, which is kind of a comedic remake of the film Gunga Den, has all the main members in it. Uh, they also made a film called Four for Texas. This only has Sinatra and Martin, but you notice they're all numbers. Like it's kind of like Sergeants Three, Four for Texas, and then finally in 1964, a musical called Robin and the Seven Hoods, which had everyone but Lawford. Obviously, um, it's funny they're all like a craps game, the seven, <laughs> 11, three, four. Um, at any rate, uh, as far as a follow-up to Frank's history in Vegas, you know, he would continue to play at the Sands, but in 1967, Howard Hughes starts buying up all the casinos. He wants to clean up Vegas. This is Howard Hughes's crazy period where he lived in a penthouse suite of the desert Inn, let his hair grow out, you know, let him fingernails grow long. Uh, he basically bought the Sands and Frank was having trouble in his marriage with Mia Farrow at this time, and he was kind of acting crazy. And he would he went to the Sands and just ran up all these gambling debts. And when he asked for credit, they wouldn't give him credit anymore. So he ended up getting in a fight with the uh, manager, Carl Cohen, this six foot three, 250 pound dude who knocked all of Frank's caps uh, off his teeth. <laughs> um, and uh, he basically stopped. He broke his contract with the Sands and then he he. Uh, switched to Caesars, which was still mafia run, and Caesars bought also bought his stake in Calneva for two point five million. So he was at Caesars from that point on. So that's kind of the, where we'll end it. You know, there's a lot more you could say about these guys and their history, but let's just end it there and let's do, let's go to the film. Let's do yeah. the walkthrough of the film. So we open up with these amazing opening credits by Saul, Bla Saul Bass. Saul Bass's graphic design could be its own show. I influenced so much of the look of things in the 20th century. Uh, amazing credits, uh, you know, with the great music of Nelson Riddle. Uh, obviously, Frank brought his musical team, uh, Sammy Kahn and um, Jimmy Van Heusen wrote the the few musical uh, lyrics we see in the piece. Uh, and we, we kind of, uh, we enter uh, a scene in Los Angeles. We see Mushy, played by um, Joey Bishop, Walking through a barbershop, oh, he's he's opening a door to a barbershop, and we see it. We have a narration: Christmas in Los Angeles, a time of kind, tolerant, generous thoughts. He enters a barbershop, kind of pulling up various towels on faces of the guys who are getting their you know haircut, and he comes across Spiros Asibos, and we learn that they are planning something big, like a heist, and Spiros is desperate to reach Danny Ocean. Uh, we see Jimmy Foster then being massaged by a woman somewhere in a in a hotel room. <laughs> so, well, uh, he somewhere geographically, not somewhere on his body, right? Yeah, yeah. What kind of massage well, was it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, we probably that part was probably cut out of the film. I see. It probably didn't. But at happen, any rate, though, happy endings and whatnot. Uh, the phone rings. Uh, we get Danny Ocean coming in, and 
uh, he is in this spectacular orange mohair sweater. By the way, we might we might send you a link to an obsessive site that talks all about Frank's sweaters in this film. Frank was a real clothes horse, and he was and he also really loved the color orange. It's kind of kind of weird, but it's it's beautiful to look at him. That's Technicolor. Uh, let's just say, really strikes a kind of a a dramatic uh, entry. And he and the phone rings, and it's obviously uh, Spiros. And Frank picks up the phone, and and he says, "Never pick up." Oh, oh no, the phone rings and then Jimmy Foster picks up the phone, sorry, and he says, never pick up the phone in December. Last time I did, they made me play in the snow. That was in the bulge, right? The Battle of the Bulge. There's, these guys are all World War II veterans. There's tons of these little references to World War II and being a soldier. Um, then Danny walks in and he grabs the phone and says, this is a recording. You've dialed the right number. Please hang up and don't do it again. Um, and then he, there's another lady with him, right? And then he tells the girls, all right, girls, it's time for your nap and shoes them out of the room. Ira, I taught them everything they know about women. <laughs> so uh, they tell Spiros they are going to Phoenix to find Vince Masler. And Spiros freaks out about this. Now, this guy's acting is so over the top. He's just like, oh, you know, it's like yeah. almost cartoonish. It really it, is. It is cartoonish. Yeah, it's very cartoonish. And he's constantly freaked out and about everything that Ocean does. Um, but anyways, so then we cut to uh, Curly Stevens, who is meeting uh, Dean Martin's character, Sam Harmon, at the airport. He has just flown in from Hawaii. Uh, Sam asks about Danny. He says, still married? And Curly says, yeah, but he's not working at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a funny line, but like just the attitude, just that they. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just a and disrespectful it's kind of, attitude. It's kind of an important plot point, sort yeah. of. We'll get to the whole Danny's marriage coming up. Uh, and then we cut to Henry Silva as Ron, Roger Corneal. He is in San Francisco at a shop that he believes Tony Bergdorf owns, but the owner tells him that Tony Bergdorf uh, has gone to jail, is in jail. So he, of course, makes a phone call to Spiros. There's a lot, first half of the movie, a lot of a lot of phone calls. So he makes yeah. a phone call to Spiros telling him that, you know, uh, he is, uh, Bergdorf is in jail. And we learn that Bergdorf is a master electrician. He's key to the plot. And of course, uh, Spiros freaks out. Our master electrician is doing one to five. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, freaking out. So Cornel, uh, you know, learns we're, from the we're shop. on our impression game. And this exactly, exactly. Same, so. I'll probably be doing Spiros in the future because he's uh, the first half of the movie. He's all over it. So Cornel goes to see Bergdorf's wife because the guy tells uh, I guess he he goes to see Bergdorf's wife to fig, uh, to find out more. She tells him that she and Tony are divorced, but Tony just happens to be getting out of prison this very day. Um, and he will find him at their son's military school where he's uh, visiting. Of course, he calls Sparrows back and now Sparrows is happy again. Uh, and then we cut to Sam and Curly. They're now arriving at Sparrows' place. And we learn that Mushy was a, a former prize fighter and him and Sam do some kind of manly punching mm. back and forth. Uh, and then we cut to Phoenix where Danny and Jimmy are now at a burlesque place. And uh, we see a woman in a bikini who is dancing on the stage. She's got a giant python wrapped around her neck. And um, like Frank's giant python or a different <laughs> one? 
And then Vince uh, Massler comes out. And we realize he's the announcer at the at the joint, and he introduces the next act, the tantalizing Honey Face. Mm. He then comes down to meet uh, Danny and Jimmy, and they tell him about the job. And this great dialogue, uh, you know, there's a great exchange where Vince says, I can't do it, boys. Think of my wife. Danny says, think of a rich. Vince says, think of me dead. Vince's wife, it turns out, is Honeyface. And some member, boisterous members of the crowd start heckling her in a lewd fashion. And of course, this is too much for Vince. And he starts fighting them. And eventually, Danny and Jimmy get into the fracas. And it's a full-on bar fight. Uh, Does does he not know that his wife is a stripper? Like... That, that that people pay money to see her disrobe and dance. I think he suddenly realizes this now, even though it's kind of implied that he's fought these guys many times. He eventually says, you know, fuck it. I'm sick of this gig and I'll take the job. Yeah. There's a lot of people. It's almost like they'll meet somebody. They'll tell them about the job. They don't want to do it. And then they change their mind. Yeah. <laughs> that the, happens so much in this film, right? The first half of this film. Era. Did she have a donkey in her act? <laughs> uh, I don't, Mr. President, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't recall that in the movie. So anyway, go ahead. So at any rate, uh, Danny and Jimmy get back to their room. Sparrows calls again. Danny pretends to be Jimmy. He puts on a British accent, uh, which looks very dubbed by somebody else. Uh, and then they tell him, they're, they they quickly tell him they're now going to Salt Lake City to get Jackson. Spiros freaks out some more. Uh, very, are, very are over the top. Are you going to do your Spiros impression? Oh, what is he trying to do to me? You know, it's always like, <laughs> why no? Why don't they respect me? Yeah. I come up with the plan. You're or, like you know, the juice. Like, huh? oh. What's weird is this guy, um, uh, Tamarok, was actually like this accomplished method actor uh, who went to, you know, he studied with Stanislavski. He's in all these great dramatic roles, but he's just doing this. Com- I mean, his method for this comedy acting is so over the top. Yeah. sounds So cut to Tony Bergdorf, who was at the military school visiting with his son. Uh, the kid tells him his clothes smell funny. And of course he says, well, I was in Japan because that's the cover story. Him and his ex-wife are telling the kid he was actually in the slammer. They kind of have a touching scene, a reunion, and then Bergdorf runs into Cornell out front. They make some more World War II references, and he tells him that Tony, uh, they want Tony for this great job uh, to be the electrician, and Cornell tells him, yeah, this is the real long green. <laughs> uh, Tony tells him about the last job he pulled with a jeweler who wanted to rob his own store. He got 60 grand. I got one to five. Roger... Roger says, this time it will take you one to five just to count your loot. Um, <laughs> Bergdorf still refuses. Yeah. Right. The next time we see Bergdorf, he is at a doctor's office and he told him that at the jail, they told him to go see a specialist. And the doctor is looking at an x-ray that doesn't look very good. And the doctor uh, kind of gives him this look and Bergdorf says to him, level with me, doc. Is it the big casino? (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite lines. And then the doctor tells him, you know, uh, we'll have to look at the biopsy. So it appears to be cancer. But what's funny is my first thought, if I was the doctor, would be to say, what? 
Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's almost like these guys live in a world where their slang makes sense to everybody. I know. Well, I mean, the big casino as it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Like, like what is it? Like, the, the, every, like life is a casino and then... Death is a casino. Death is a casino. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then the big it certainly wouldn't make like, sense to this to this charlie yeah. to this charlie it's doctor hard. who's outside of the loop this harm yeah. right yeah okay cut to vince masler who is now one of the recruiters in in the group and he is recruiting josh howard and we are now at josh howard's garbage truck garbage truck yard where they are all the garbage men are having an impromptu jazz session with full orchestra but As it's really does. only uh we only see a guy playing our harmonica and we hear Josh, we see Josh singing EO11. Mm. Now, Jeff, what the fuck does EO11 mean? I have like, no idea. Danny Ocean's 11 would be DO11. I have no idea what EO11. In context, it, it doesn't really seem to mean anything. I never figured this out. Maybe it's just kind of like a jazz hipsterism kind of, yeah. kind of thing. If anybody knows, type of... on our Instagram. Yeah, I, I, I never rate, understood what this yeah, was. Yeah, I tried to find references to this and I couldn't. But at any rate, after the performance, we learned that Josh is a washed up ball player. Uh, you know, obviously he can't play baseball due to his eye injury and the racism of the South where he was a ball player. Uh, and that he was kind of a yellow belly known as a coward during the war, but that somehow he earned a, a, a medal of honor. Uh, and then... You know, he obviously they talk about the job and 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 then we cut to Sam Harmon, who now this is interesting. He is now with Danny and Jimmy somehow. Yeah. So he has traveled to their hotel room, which I guess is in Salt Lake City. But this is really weird because they don't actually have Jackson with them. They don't actually get Jackson. He comes later, which we'll get to. And of course, he's playing what? A kick in the head. Right. Yeah. For the first time in the movie. Again, with full orchestra, but only him on a piano. And what kind of room has a piano in it? I mean, pretty, that's it's kind of I mean, interesting, right? Pretty fancy suite, in fact. Yeah, pretty yeah. fancy suite. Um, yeah. So then we meet B Ocean. She comes in, Angie Dickinson. Of course, it's Christmas, right? Because the the, the heist is going to be done on New Year's Eve, and it's Christmas as you know, it's going to about to be Christmas. And she walks in with a giant Christmas present. And we learn that uh, she is B Ocean, uh, Danny Ocean's estranged wife. They're still married, but separated. And uh, she, he basically, Sam is really interested in them getting back, back together. And uh, B has a, a, some really good lines. She says, I want a life that doesn't depend on the color of a card or the length of a horse's nose. We didn't have a marriage. We had a floating crap game. I have a clip of some other stuff she says I'll play here. Right, okay. I'll consider mistress, plaything, toy for a night, but I refuse to be your mother. That's out. So there's this whole thing where, uh, you know, uh, Sam Harmon, the Dean Martin character, is sort of playing. He's, oh, I'm just going to call call me mother because I want to take care of you. And that's her response to to him saying that she'll kind of be a, a, a temptress and all that stuff, but she's not, uh, you know, she don't want to be called mother or, or have him call her mother or some weird shit like that. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. So he's he's very interested in this. Um, so as B gets up to leave, because she just wants to drop off the present, and then Jimmy and Danny come in at the same time, and Danny kind of follows into the elevator and uh, kind of, 
directs, you know, gets the elevator guy to bring them up to the sky room, which is not open yet, but they can sit and talk. He sits her down and he says, now sit there and don't interrupt me. Yeah, I have a clip. I have a clip of that as well. Now just sit there and don't interrupt me. I've got a very big deal going on. Large chips, carloads of them. That sounds familiar. That might be so, but this time it's true. Oh, good. I like to have rich friends. This is one rich friend who wants to spend a bundle on you. Gee, thanks. Okay, that's settled. On the morning of January the 2nd, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to hop down to Rio, so you pack a bag. You're serious. I honestly think you're serious. Well, of course I'm serious. A week's trip to Rio. Yes. <laughs> oh, Danny, what a prize you are. The only husband in the world who'd proposition his own wife. Well, I married you once and it didn't work out too well. So what's wrong with a little hey, hey? <laughs> That's a great line. That yeah. never gets old for me either. Although I will say this is almost like what Frank wanted his real life women to be like. You know, he um, obviously Ava was an exception. She was just like him. You know, he met his match with her. But with the, with with his first wife, Nancy, he really was philandering on her from day one. I mean, he was cheating one and he really just wanted her to be a wife and and take it and obviously they got a divorce but he would continue to go back and have dinner was dinners with her and she never married anyone else for the rest of her life so it was kind of like what he wanted his women to be in real life it was really interesting this scene yeah so so yeah she follows that up telling him that um he has a love for danger as long as it keeps coming up heads, she says. They have some more dialogue about how they uh, can't change each other and want to change each other, the other person, blah, blah, blah. Ira, speaking of coming up heads, let's talk about Mimi Alford. <laughs> Who's, Who's Mimi Alford? I, isn't that, um, oh, uh, you know, so if I remember, this is like one of the interns at the White House who wrote like a tell-all book about having an affair Oh yeah, uh, with, with JFK, uh, Mr. President, is is that what you're talking about? Ira, the internship program at the White House was an instrumental part of my administration, and that instrument was a skin flute. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, yeah, I don't. <laughs> Ira, Joey Bishop wrote that for me. That's funny. Uh, That's funny, Mr. President. Very good. So anyway, she was one of the best interns we ever had. She excelled at oral presentations for the staff. (laughs) All right. So Jimmy and Sam are in the hotel room and Jimmy wants to call his mother to ask for money. So we learn that Jimmy is kind of a rich mama's boy. And in order to pull off the job, he needs more funding. And Sam sings a little ditty about that kind of tell your mother hello. No, Um, stop. I'm just calling mother. Sure, I love the dear money that shines in her hair And the brow that's all furrowed and wrinkled with care I kiss the dear fingers that hold all that dough God bless her and keep her Tell your mother hello 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 All right, so we get that great little ditty, right? Uh, And then Jimmy calls his mother and do you you have a clip of him talking to his mother, right? We should uh No, I just have the what I just played. Oh, okay. So you don't have the the ultimate uh no. weird bit of dialogue in the film. So so he calls his mother and he says he needs money. 
M-O-N-Y. <laughs> it's so, I mean, that, what the hell was that? That must've been improv. And then, and then uh, Sam says, E, E. Yeah. And then he says, M-O-N-E-Y, right? So yeah. she tells him, she, you know, obviously he is. Um, Maybe that's the E-O-11, the E. Right. He, he, she tells him that, uh, you know, obviously he's the apple of her eye, even though he's always asking for money. She tells him to come over that afternoon to get it. Uh, Jimmy and Sam talk a little bit about Hawaii and then, and B and Danny. And Sam is kind of questioning the whole idea of the job, which will become important later. Uh, Jimmy talks about how his mother has been married five times and how he doesn't like depending on her. Cause obviously if he can get money from his mother, why would he want to do his job? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a 40-year-old guy who doesn't have a job. He's just a loser. Just gets the money from his mom. You know, it's so weird. Right. She get a job. Right. Anyway. Okay, so Danny comes in and greets Sam. You know, this is the first time they're they're evidently meeting. Uh, then Danny calls Spiros, and we have uh we we get to meet Spiros's Chinese valet, Asian valet, and he answers the phone, and it's like totally racist. It's Hello? like hero. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not great, right? And then Danny pretends to be an Irish. So Danny is well, constantly. I mean, it was played by an Asian actor. Yeah, you know, at least at least, at it, least it was. But in, by yeah. 1960, that was pretty common. Although they did, you still have like uh, some incidences of, uh, I guess, yellow face. You would call Sean it. Sean Connery they, wanted to do it, right? But, yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, you know, it, it's it's. The the theme here is that Danny is constantly picking on Spiros and riling him up. And one thing he does is he pretends to be an Irish cop and claims that they found Danny and Sam's bodies. And Spiros, of course, can Spiros come and identify the bodies? And of course, he's he's pranking him there. And then um, at that moment, a woman bursts into the room. Uh, and this is Adele, right? We'll meet her later in the film. And I'm warning you, Danny Ocean. I'm one girl you can't treat this way. I won't be pushed around and neglected. What exactly you plan to do about it? Plenty. I'm going to do just plenty. Don't you think it's about time you got started? Now, wait a minute, Big Buster. Now, you wait a minute and listen to me very carefully, my dear. I picked you up at the Biltmore Bar because I thought you were attractive and I had nothing better to do. And I made a pass at you for the very same reasons. Now, I don't know what your reasons were, but nobody twisted your arm, made you any promises. So what is this act? Not outrage virtue. Ira, they stole one of my best pickup lines. Yeah, that's a real charmer right there. Mr. President. Yeah, I mean that there you go. That's a that's a real charmer. But she ends up throwing a glass ashtray at him. And that was uh I think that was um uh improvised. I'm not I don't remember, but it, it seemed like uh it was pretty pretty good scene there. But she'll come back. Uh there, there's a reason they brought her in. Um at any rate, next we cut to Spiros, who's getting a cab to go to the police station because he believed. Uh, the police officer, and then as he's getting into the cab, he sees that Danny, Sam, and Jimmy are in the back seat. So he's mm -hmm. like, "Oh, you guys, you Danny Ocean," you know. Um, anyway, uh, then we cut to Jimmy Foster, who shows up at his mother's place, and we meet uh, her new about-to-be husband, her fiance, Duke Santos, played by Cesar Romero. And Jimmy immediately doesn't like him. Right? 
he's sick of all these husbands and he um, kind of knows Santos by reputation. Santos toss, is tossing something in his hand and he says, that's the engagement ring I got your mother, Jimmy Zircon, isn't it? <laughs> Santos, no, your mom has good taste. Jimmy, does she? Uh, but when I uh, when I first saw this uh, movie, I couldn't think of anything other than the Joker with Cesar Romero. You know, so I yeah. mean, that, that was just weird to see him, you know, because he's always the 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 Joker. But uh, era, he was a big fruit. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's just hearsay, Mr. President. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's probably true that he was he was gay in Hollywood at that time. Probably wasn't easy for him. No, um, but uh, but yeah, I I mean, whenever I saw him on screen, I was just like, uh, it's the Joker. Like, why is yeah. the Joker out of his makeup anyway? So anyway, we learn that Santos is a former criminal. Of course, Jimmy knows him by reputation. Uh, Santos, wait, wait, but that's weird too, right? Like this guy is such a big criminal that like everybody knows him by reputation, and then he's, yeah, like, yeah, that with comes, his that, mother. Yeah, that's one of the weird things about this movie, but it's an important detail that will play in. Uh, have some have some relevance later but yeah it's weird that the woman would marry this guy like yeah. if he's such a criminal right well i mean she's like some upper crust broad you know yeah. and and you know she's marrying all these rich dudes apparently it seems like and then she's gonna get with you know some arch criminal type who's not like a reformed criminal type this seems right. weird. it doesn't make sense it doesn't make any sense there's there, there's definitely some flaws in the screenplay here so Santos suggests that they have a drink, but it's weird. He's like, drink to my wedding. And Jimmy says, sure. But Santos is not actually going to drink himself because he has stomach problems. Jimmy kind of eggs him on into doing it. And then, then he does and ends up clutching his stomach and running out of the room. Like Arnold did on that Access Hollywood. Interview. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, yeah. From our Commando episode, which you guys should check out. Okay. Then we meet Jimmy's mom. She comes in and Ask him if he'll ask, you know, kind of ask him about the wedding and says how Duke is so great for her. She gives Jimmy the money and he makes up a story about going skiing in Squaw Valley. So he doesn't <laughs> want to tell her he's going to Vegas um, at any rate. Yeah. And, and he like, again, this is a 40 year old guy who has no job, who just gets an allowance from his mommy. That's, yeah, I like, think that's, that's weird. That's not it? unheard of. That's not unheard of. That definitely happens in the real world. Well, it, it, uh, with it rich does. kids, it does. But I mean, they, they like make this character. It, it seems like a pretty big character flaw, and this character doesn't seem to have any qualms about like he doesn't get any razzing other than Dean Martin singing a song about his mother. Like, wouldn't people like kind of look down upon that? Then you know, it's just like oh, this rich kid just gets an allowance from his mommy, and he's you know, there is some dialogue about. Uh, you know, Santos kind of respects that he was in the 82nd Airborne. We did, we didn't, we kind of skipped over that and how brave he was. So, and there's other dialogue about his heroism during the war. So that could be part of that too. They talk about that later in the film. So anyway, and this is about when that happens, the, the whole gang now almost, it, almost the entire 11 are now at uh, Spiros's place. And they're all talking about how they're going to spend the money when they pull off the job. Um, Norman Fell, as Pete Reamer, says he'll buy a boat that he won't even use. Uh, Danny says he'll buy the Miss Universe pageant just to talk to the girls. Jimmy will buy some votes and be a politician. That's some right. foreshadowing to real life. 
Sam will Sam says he's going to repeal the 14th and 20th amendments, take away women's right to vote and make them slaves. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so there you go. Yeah, I approve. <laughs> Especially with the the uh buying some votes part, I guess. Yeah. At any rate, Spiros is still freaking out because Jackson isn't there. Are, uh, I, I'm going to have to ask you to go ahead and do your Spiros impression again. Jackson, where is he? You know, I, I, I mean, it's like he is just, oh, God. I, my favorite part of the movie is when he's not in it. Yeah. But anyway, so he freaks out. And then Jackson does show up with a police officer. There's a lot of stuff in this movie where they'll have the police show up. But it's not like there's ever any danger of anything happening, right? The police like misdirection. Shows up. Kind of yeah, it's thing. misdirection, but it's, it does, it has zero suspense with the way it's filmed. And so the cop is basically helping him find the place and he sees that Jackson has a broken arm and Spiros freaks out. And then he just takes off the cast and throws it at him. Like it was maybe a prank. It was very weird. And yeah. the other idea is if those guys go to Salt Lake city, why did they go to Scott Lake City and then Jackson shows up now? Like, yeah. it just it doesn't really make sense. It's like it was, um, something was edited out or something, it seems like. Yeah, there's there's some continuity weirdness, too. And even as they switch different rooms, you're not really sure where they are half the time. But anyway, so now the movie's about to really start here. <laughs> so we've been through all this thought. There's some great little dialogue. This is kind of when the movie really begins. So they all surround the pool table and Jimmy says a few introductory words and then Danny takes out a handkerchief uh, and what he what he lays on the table. And what it is, is a very kind of simple stylized map of all the casinos on the strip. And each one has its own logo. There's a, the art, the art, does the design in this movie is very much casino marketing material. Yeah. And and it's almost like something a tourist would get like at a, at a shop in Vegas. So it's got the Sahara, the Riviera, the desert and the sands and the Flamingo all laid out depicting the casinos. And he basically lays out the plan and the plan is for Josh, uh, Howard and Pete Reamer, who are the explosives guys to knock out a power tower outside of town, which will cut the power to the casinos. And the casinos have a backup system that will automatically turn on the lights in a few minutes. But the idea is that before that time, Tony Bergdorf, the electrician, will cross the wires of the light. So they're they are switched with the with the with the switch that opens up the doors to the cages to the where the money is. Right. So they'll switch off the lights and the doors will open and then they'll steal the money. Right. And, while, and how did they while come this up chaos with this is going. Like, well, Spiros I, came up with the plan. I see Spiros. Uh, that's that's the idea. They talk about that in a minute, right? So um, they will, and and then this is the crazy thing. So they're all they all have jobs at the casinos already lined up, like uh, which is really weird to me. I don't know if it's because it's New Year's. Maybe they need extra help, and they're and they're just getting jobs. But anyway, they all have jobs, and so they'll be ready to steal from the casino. It'll be dark for like ten to fifteen minutes, and they have this whole plan. Right. And then, you know, uh, Spiros basically has this inspirational speech and then they kind of ask him, well, everyone's like, well, what are you? What's your role in this? And Spiros can't participate in the actual heist because he is he is a known felon. And as we mentioned at the beginning in Las Vegas, a known felon can't be there, which is really weird because Bergdorf just got out of jail. 
Yeah. And they actually talk about this. And he's all, well, you're not a, you're not a hood. It's like he was in jail. Yeah. Like how did, how come he go and, and, and Spiros yeah, can't. It doesn't make sense. Right. And he got a, and, but he wasn't working at the casino. Was he? Bergdorf wasn't like, didn't have one of the jobs at the casino. He was just kind of. No, no, he's just there. Right. He, right. there, there, the work will get to the actual logistics of it, but you're right. He doesn't actually have a job, but he, it's weird. He does bring this up and they yeah. say, well, you're not a hood. And it's like, well, doing one to five for robbing a jewelry store, I guess makes you a hood Yeah. Um, or doesn't, I don't know. But yeah. anyway, maybe Spiros is in the Greek mafia. I have maybe. no idea. Um, but at any rate, um, Sam says, forget it. He's not interested in doing the plan. He thinks they're too old to pull it off. Uh, Foster calls him a chicken. Uh, Jimmy Foster calls him a chicken. And of course, this is when they mention Foster's bravery. Spiros starts a fight with him. Uh, but everyone else still wants to do the plan. And uh, even Josh, who Sam thinks will be with him, wants to do the plan. Uh, I guess because Josh is chicken too uh but anyway so danny then decides they can only rob four out of five casinos but no suspense sam instantly changes his mind and says <laughs> well you can't go without your best guy so i will do that they all put their hands on the pool table kind of on top of one each uh, each other right and then danny says day after tomorrow we'll be in vegas the music crescendos and danny says happy new year mm. right that's an hour that's an hour, right? This is a yeah. two hour and 10 minute movie thereabouts. That's an hour of the movie, right? So nothing's really happened. They've just been planning to get this together, right? So they cut, we cut to the strip at night, a beautiful scene. And we see Josh's garbage truck drive by the Flamingo. What's interesting is the sign on the Flamingo. I'll be talking about the sign say. Uh, the sign says Harry James is playing. Uh, fun fact, Harry James was the first uh, orchestra that Frank Sinatra ever sang for before Tommy Dorsey. Oh. So that's kind of a shout out to him. Yep. Um, at any rate, uh, Roger Corneal is working there as a kind of porter and he's taking out the trash. And I love that the cans, all trash cans have the Flamingo logo on them. There's the logos everywhere. Right. Yep. And um, and he is talking to Josh about this fluorescent paint they're going to use. Right. To be able to see the doorknobs, uh, to see the door when everything when the lights are out and to see their their footsteps. And he says, it's not working. He says, I can't see a thing. It's not ready for the public. Josh gives him a flashlight and some dark glasses and then he can see the footprints and you kind of get the goofy Nelson Riddle kind of spooky music. And you see these footprints. It's really beautiful to look at. I mean, this movie's visuals are in, are awesome from this point on. And um Roger uh, makes a joke saying they ought to put this in Dame's makeup. It would make for some real interesting midnights. <laughs> Era, I would have spray painted Castro sucks dicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mr. Okay. President, I understand. Yeah. So that scene with Josh's garbage truck uh, driving by each, uh, the Flamingo is repeated, right? In a kind of, a montage over the next uh you know uh 20 minutes or 15 or 20 minutes lots of, the of day glow colors just not just the paint but just to your point the art direction the lights all, and yeah, the art direction it, yeah. it's just beautiful i would just yeah. uh, love to see this film on the big screen yeah. i mean it must just pop out of the screen it's really awesome 
so we have a series of scenes in front of each of the casinos, each opening with Josh's garbage truck driving in front of the uh, the signs, and then a couple of the eleven, each of the eleven who work at each casino, either spray painting some in- spray painting some invisible paint around uh, the doorknobs or kind of guarding the scene as Tony Burkdorf goes into the back door to inspect the electrical panels of the casino for in preparation for the job. So first we see Jimmy, uh, who is at the Flamingo, and Roger uh, is also at the Flamingo, as we mentioned. Um, then we cut to the sands, and we have this little, um, we see a sign that Red Skelton is playing, which will be relevant in a minute. Um, and then we see Danny, of course. Uh, of course, Danny's at the Sands because that's Frank Sinatra's casino in real life. Um, and he's kind of guarding things. And Vince is the porter uh, spraying the doorknob in this scene. Then there is a kind of comedic scene at the Sands cashier window with Red Skelton, who has told the casino employees in advance not to let him spend past his limit. But of course, he's... Uh, it's implied he's a gambling addict and he wants to spend uh, and he starts to get belligerent. And 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 so the cashier pushes um, a button, a secret button to call security, and he's hauled away by security. Um, Danny is kind of waiting in line in in that scene. And then Danny guards the door as Bergdorf then goes uh, into a back room to fuddle with the electrical panel. At the Desert Inn, that's where Louis Prima and Keely Smith are playing. Keely Smith was uh, another Big, a good friend of Frank Sinatra. He sang with her uh, at times. Um, we see Jackson guarding the door and um, we see Pete Reamer as the porter spraying the doors. And then at the Riviera, where Buddy Hackett is playing, uh, we see uh, Josh actually gives Bergdorf a key. So he has to go through an outside door using a key. And he also says, here's one for the Sahara. And then Tony goes through the back door to do his thing. Now, cut to the Sahara, we see Sam. And Sam's job is a singer. So he is uh, sitting at a piano with the Sahara logo, playing in front of a jazz combo, uh, including the vibes. And he's singing, of course, what? Kick in the head. Kick in the head, right? And we see three ladies at the foot of the stage. uh, And they look like they want to have a foursome with Sam. They're really Mm -hmm. into him. Uh, And as he gets up to leave, he says, you look like you've been getting combat fatigue, girls. You've been holding that line a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, Dean is weird because he's such a comedic (laughs) figure, but he's like this really handsome dude. So it's like, you know, he he definitely had a way with the ladies, but it's so funny. (laughs) Just another hole in the boat. And they're all, oh my God, he's so sexy. Even though it's this comedic kind of clowny song. They only could get that one song together for this whole fucking movie. That's how lazy they were. You have like all these- Two songs, two songs, uh, uh, EO11 and and the Little Mother song, but that's it. Yeah. Anyway. And we'll talk about- Talk about that in the evaluations, because I take issue with uh, something, let's say, that might be missing from this movie that should be there. Okay, then we see Mushy, who's a janitor. He's sweeping up and he is, you know, he reaches over to spray a little fluorescent paint on the doorknob. Uh, Sam walks outside and kind of watches things as Bergdorf, uh, uh, you know, uh, does his thing. And as Bergdorf comes out, we see a cop and, you know, there's some suspense for a nanosecond and then they're fine. Yeah. And then they all go bowling. Well, of course. Yeah, they all go bowling, right? So the bowling scene is really kind of for some more exposition to talk about the job. 
So Danny asks Tony what he found out from the kind of inspection of all the panels. Tony says it will work out fine and he needs to start an hour and 40 minutes before midnight. He needs to start crossing the wires. Now, Danny asks what we're all thinking. Why not just do it earlier? And in fact, when I first saw the film, I thought that's what he was doing. And I was kind of confused. Um, You know, it's still two days before New Year's. uh, And Tony says, if the line goes down for real, then the doors will spring open like a set of false teeth. So he's saying, basically, what if the power really went out? Then their scheme would be, you know, basically over. Uh, Then there's a quick update on the status of each of the people who are working at the casinos. Um, Sam wants to go get wasted and fuck a bunch of showgirls or that sort of implied, but yeah, Danny I, says, no, <laughs> we'll just need to rehearse until then. So the idea is they're just going to, we don't really see these scenes, but that's implied. Okay. Wait, rehearse with this, with the girls or rehearse their. Rehearse their plan. You know, again, I don't know how they would rehearse it. It seems like that's kind of what they just did in the previous scenes. But again, it's, you know. It's the way that time passes in this movie makes no sense because all of a sudden we're at New Year's, right? The next scene, we're at the Flamingo. Everyone is super dressed up. It looks amazing, right? It's beautiful to look at. We see Adele walk by with a group of people, including the jealous guy we talked about. Um, And we see some people uh, duet on stage kind of singing at a showroom. And it's just, I mean, just visually stunning, this scene. There's so many colors. Um, And she she sees Danny and she's kind of looking at him and her date is kind of pissed uh, for checking Danny out. And then she runs into him. Right. Uh, And he says, what are you doing here? Obviously he's not happy to see her. And she says, same as you cheating. Mm. Uh, Danny denies this, but he kind of manhandles her and kind of uh, kisses on her a bit and then hangs his room key down the front of her dress. Yeah. That's a pro move. (laughs) (laughs) And she she kind of acts like she's into it, but then she immediately goes to a phone booth in the casino and calls B, who is at home, and somehow she has her number and tells Danny, uh, uh, tells her about Danny's hitting on her. And B says, I was always told that creatures like you rattled before they struck, but I didn't hear a thing. And B basically tells her to fuck off. And now she is somehow more loyal to Danny hearing this than ever. I think Frank must have written this dialogue. This is like classic Frank. Like there's, you know, he's not doing anything wrong and he's never done anything wrong. It's all the woman's fault. So she hangs up on Adele and Adele throws the key in a planter. (laughs) I just want to say like uh, Frank, Frank Sinatra must like his idea of, and, and, you know, I think Mr. President, this is kind of your view of, of, of Jackie, it seems like as well, but they were just there to kind of take up space. And like the whole social life was just a bunch of different women. And, you know, that they just kind of rubbed in the face of the, so to speak of their wives. It's so, weird. yeah. It's so, weird. yeah, it's, re- it's really crazy. Um, so, okay. We see a shot of the strip and then this new year's, balloon kind of floats up so it's symbolic of yes it's new year's and we don't know when that flamingo scene was if it was the same night it's implied because adele's there all dressed up right and everybody's there for new year's um and then uh you know it's implied that that they're getting down to the actual job and then we see josh and peter at the tower 
And Pete plants a bomb with a timer that is set to go off one minute and 20 seconds after midnight. Back at the Flamingo, we see that Adele and her date are seated at a table with guess who? Duke Santos and Mrs. Restes, Jimmy's mother. Uh, they just happen to be there. That, I mean, that's what the screenplay does. They just happen so to show weird. up, right? Uh, and of course, uh, Adele forms, and they're friends with Adele, of all things. So Adele informs Mrs. Restes that her son Jimmy is not in Squaw Valley, but is there with Danny Ocean. Uh, back at the Sands, we see Danny and Tony can't do their thing. So again, what we're going to get is sort of a repeat of what we just saw earlier with the, you know, Tony going into various back rooms, doing the rewiring in preparation for the job. Um, so Tony and Tan uh, Danny and Tony can't really do this because a security guard is blocking the way. So Danny gets some chips and rolls one in front of the guard who kind of does a side-to-side uh, -side look, making sure no one is looking and goes and puts his foot on it. And that enables Tony to sneak by into the back room. At the Desert Inn, Jackson guards the door as Tony sneaks into the back. So Tony is like the one doing most of the work here. He's like going from casino to casino doing these rewirings. Yeah. It seems like they might have, instead of having so many guards and porters, uh, maybe the guard could have sprayed the paint and done the porter job. Yeah. And then they could have had more electricians. <laughs> it seems kind of logistically bizarre, right? And they didn't have, I mean, security cameras, even at the rudimentary ones at this point. It yeah, seems... I don't know. I don't know if the technology was there. It seems like it would might have been. Yeah. Or they would have had more guards, you know, on the doors. I mean, it's like, this is the mafia we're talking about, exactly. right? Um, so at any rate, uh, at the Desert Inn, Jackson's guarding the door. Same routine. Tony sneaks in the back. At the Riviera, Tony is working on the um the switch box and and then curly drives by in a little cart this is the first time we see curly and he's like he's like hey tony are you gonna be able to do it on time and okay. of course he's yelling this and tony's like pissed at him but affirms that he will at the sahara again <laughs> we see <laughs> sam singing kick in the head for the yeah. third this time with different chicks drooling over him yeah i mean it's again we get to hear the same song uh, Tony is prevented from getting in the back door. So, and then we see Tony outside, right? And we see a drunk Shirley MacLaine and her friend drive up. Uh, and so Tony has to hide in the bushes because he's got to use that key to get in the back door. Um, but Sam comes out to the rescue and has some banter with uh, Shirley MacLaine, who's really tearing up the scenery here. And uh, she says something about Ricky Nelson. And then he says, I used to be Ricky Nelson, but now I'm Perry Como. Yeah, uh, and this I, was probably inner improvised because, you know, obviously that was an inside joke because he was known for being kind of a Perry Como clone when he was younger. I have a clip of that. Let's All right. Here you are, Missy. Happy New Year to you. It so happens that I do not know who you are, my good fellow. Oh, well, now, who do I have to be to wish you a Happy New Year? <laughs> Ricky Nelson. <laughs> I used to be Ricky Nelson. I, I'm Perry Como now. Come on. Uh, no, you're not. You move. Smart girl, smart girl. Now, about this night air, let's get in out of it. Come on, come on. Is it New Year's yet? Too close for comfort. Come on. No, I hate it, too. I hate holidays. You like holiday? Hey, give me a little kiss. How about it, huh? Sound idea. It's constructive. You yeah. wait right there, and I'll be there in a minute. Yeah, I'll wait for you. <laughs>
you know something? I think I kiss better when I'm drunk than I do when I'm sober. Some other time. <laughs> Where are you going? Oh, after all that we've meant to each other, I must leave you. Hey, now, this is a dirty deal. Our first quarrel. I don't fit into your picture, huh? From here on in, you don't, sweetheart. Good night. Good night. It's okay, man. It's okay. So happens, I'm very much in demand. Good night. <laughs> I think uh, Shirley MacLaine was a little ways away from her Oscar-winning days. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, but especially with that laugh, Jesus. Yeah. So anyway, during the time they're kissing, that's when Tony is able to sneak in the back door. And then one of my favorite sequences in the film, uh, we cut to one of the casino's ballrooms. It's filled with uh, balloons. And a, we see a guy on stage says, it's almost midnight. And he says, grab your girls, et cetera. And then we just cut to each of the casinos as they all, as the crowd counts down to midnight. And it's like each casino has different color themes with different color theme balloons. And it's just so visually spectacular. I mean, it's amazing. So they all count down and then everyone starts to sing Old Lang Syne. And then we see a scene of all the five signs kind of in a five-way split, uh, split screen of the casinos. And then we cut to the power, the towers, uh, the power tower outside of town. It explodes. All the lights blink off, right? And then uh, there's some good-spirited chaos in the darkness. Uh, one guy says he's about to kiss his girl, and he says, oh, pardon me, wrong girl. And then we see uh, the, the, the camera cut to the different fluorescent paint around the doorknobs as the lights go out. And each of them have different patterns. Like There's like a horseshoe and an X and different colors. It's really yeah. cool looking. And they all have uh, to jiggle the beautiful. door to let you know that they're struggling with it a little bit, right? Like right, right. And then we see, uh, you know, Norman Fell, Peter Reamer burst into the money counting room of the Desert Inn. He pulls out a gun and commands the guys to keep singing as he starts collecting the money. And they're they're all singing. And it's the dark, though. So what's weird is they can barely see the gun, which I don't know if you noticed this, but it didn't even make sense. Like, right. They don't you can't even see that he has a gun. People busted. It's like, keep singing. It's like it's not even clear that they're being robbed almost. And right, right. uh, and then we have a montage of the safe door. The inside it shows the inside of the safe doors, and they're opening. And we see various members: Jimmy at the Flamingo, Sam at the Sahara, Danny at the Sands, kind of pulling out money. And what's funny is each of the inside of the door, uh, the the safe doors, have the logo of each casino in stylized print. Yeah. It's just a crazy how they get the casino marketing and every chance they get. Um, and then um, we start to see uh, Tony kind of. St- walking away outside stumbling outside and he doesn't look too good uh kind of some foreshadowing there and then we cut to the same shot of the painted footsteps right with the creepy music that we saw earlier and then another five-way split screen shows uh the trash cans of the different casinos being loaded with the money bags right and of course each casino's trash cans have their logo on them of course um the lights come back on you know we see the same five the, the sign uh, shot with the lights coming back on. Uh, and then we see Duke Santos walking by one of the cashiers and he overhears them say, we've been hit. And then the police are called. Uh, and then we see a shot of the sheriff 
Uh, and he's asking someone on the other line, well, did you see them? Did you see anything? What did they look like? And then he says, huh, they made you sing. <laughs> and then we learn that a roadblock has been set up on uh, uh, to get uh, so no one can get out of town. We hear a newscaster start to broadcast what's happening. And someone tells him that if he's going to interview people, he should pick elderly couples because some of the others might not belong together. Uh Ring a ding ding. That's another uh, slang from the uh, Rat Pack. And then Danny asks Jackson, you know, how'd the action go? Everyone's really happy. And then we see Tony again, who's stumbling. And he says, never the luck, never the luck. And has a heart attack and dies. The big casino. Yeah. Right. It's the big casino. He dies. And it's crazy because I thought he had cancer because of biopsies, but apparently he also had heart trouble. He had a lot of health problems and he dies. Yeah. Now, Jimmy and Danny see this happen. And Jimmy consoles Danny saying a lot of guys die in the street. And Danny says, no sweat. Yeah. (laughs) Very weird. Right. Yeah, it is. And then Sam comes up and says, his part went smooth as a peeled egg. Well, I mean, uh, he had a lot of rehearsal for that one song. So, yeah, exactly. Even though it was not that smooth with Shirley MacLaine kind of coming into the picture, kind of the most suspenseful part of the whole heist. And then Danny is uh, taking Tony's death hard. And Sam says, yeah, it's been a long time since he lost a man in combat. <laughs> and then we cut to Josh, who's driving the garbage truck with the garbage cans loading. All the all the money's been loaded into it. And he's yeah. driving through the roadblock roadblock you know they he's the cop says get that garbage truck out of here and he starts singing eo 11 again the mm-hmm. second time we hear that EO and then 11. he he goes to the we see him at the dump and he's taking out the money bags and putting them into a barrel uh at the dump uh to retrieve so he can retrieve them later and then we cut to spiros back in la who has now read about the heist on the front page so i guess it's the next day or a day or two later um And then we cut to a scene that features Jack Strager, who is one of the heads of the casinos, uh, played by George Raft, which is definitely a mafia reference here, because George Raft is known for playing the original Scarface. He's also, as I mentioned, played the the spoof character in Some Like It Hot, the mafia uh, leader Spats Palumbo. So it's definitely a mafia reference here. And he's at a table with the four other casino heads, and they're trying to figure out um, what to do about this theft because they know their bosses who it's implied or the mafia won't be happy. You're right. They're busy getting me elected president. (laughs) And then of course, who walks in, but Duke Santos, who, uh, you know, his reputation is so great among these guys that they figure, (laughs) Oh God, I, you know, they were like, I'm relieved when I heard Duke was involved. Now I'm not worried. And he offers to get the money back to them. If they, if he can have 30%. So, so this doesn't even make any sense either, because Duke Santos, again, the Joker, right? Are they're such a master criminal, but who's now reformed? But he's essentially going to go and like blackmail the mob for thirty yeah. percent. Like that does not seem like a, a winning move to go and try to blackmail the mob, especially if you're trying to go legit or whatever he's he's implying. Yeah, he's it's, it's really weird. It's really weird, right? I it mean, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, 
I always like the scenes with Cesar Romero, though. He's got that great slick way of talking. Now, we forgot to talk about in the in the early scene when he first meets Jimmy and Jimmy doesn't like him. He's all, you'll find out I can be a pretty good Joe. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, I kind of like the scenes with him, but you're right. They don't really add up to a lot. And there's and and the other thing is, as we'll see, he's very late to kind of put things two and two together um, about who did the job. So anyway. Uh, Santos starts putting in calls to his his contacts around the country to find out who who did the job. Um, we cut to the police who are talking to Tony's widow, and she wants to bring his body back to San Francisco. Um, and it and of course, you know. Uh, anyway, we'll get to that. But Duke Duke also meets with the sheriff, and he kind of overhears that Tony was a member of the 82nd Airborne. So the police know Tony was a member of the 82nd Airborne, but they don't know that he's like an electrician who right. pulled off a jewelry. It's just weird how they don't, oh, he was a veteran. You know, yeah, he was also a criminal. And you is a criminal record. You know, you put two to two together. And then, of course, Duke doesn't right away go, wait, the 82nd Airborne that Jimmy's a member of, and he already knows that Jimmy was actually in Vegas with Ocean because he Adele told them. Right. It's very weird, right? So anyway, um, Duke, uh, Duke kind of starts to put this together. He meets with an employee at the funeral and tells him to keep him up to date about stuff, right? Uh, but then Duke overhears Mrs. Resty Mrs. Resty's maybe Duke maybe Duke was away from the table when that happened because he overhears her talking about Danny and the fact that you know uh, the son wasn't at Squaw Valley that she was in Vegas and he then knows that they pulled off the heist but it's weird how he kind of gradually pieces this together it's kind of very awkward writing I think um, yeah but your, your, rate, your jobless son who is a former member of you know you know the military twenty years prior. He right. That decides, is also oh, yeah, oh, with the same guy who was a who who had died in the street, right? Right. Um, yeah. and then Danny Ocean is there and they're all there, right? So Santos, you know, chuckles to himself and tells her, uh, Mrs. Restes, that her son actually pulled off this job with Ocean. Um, so he pays a visit to Danny and Sam and tells them that he knows they did it, uh, and he wants half the money now. Right. And they're like half, you know, that's crazy. And he says, well, 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. So Sam and Danny then have a brief argument about whether Jimmy sort of fucked them over and ratted on them. And they decide, again, there's this drama, but then immediately he convinces Sam that he couldn't possibly have done that. And Sam feels bad about it. And he actually apologizes to Jimmy later about that. And it's like, it's just like, weird how this movie will have like someone dramatically saying i don't want to be part of the heist and then immediately changes their mind like why even do that it's just really weird but anyway um mrs resties tells jimmy uh duke knows about the whole thing uh that they did it and she is really upset uh you know obviously jimmy meets with danny and sam and they're like what do we do so sam has a brilliant idea to get them out of this and basically, the first part of them of the idea is is the most racist thing ever, where they go with Josh to go get the money, but in order to be incognito, they put on blackface uh, uh, to become garbage men because obviously a garbage man can't be white. Um, Josh jokes, "I knew this color would come in handy someday," and then Danny says, "How do you get this stuff off?" Era. Yeah. 
the blackface with my father joe's idea (laughs) oh man dude it does not age well so they get the money and then they go to the funeral home uh home and store it in the coffin now this is a beautiful scene too because it's all filmed in shadows and it's just the cinematography is amazing um and it's really cool and spooky with great music now, so they so they hide it in the coffin, right? And then we cut to, I guess, what's at the airport because they're waiting for the coffin to be delivered, to be flown back to San Francisco. But there are some of the other 11 at the funeral home. And then we cut to the a scene of the funeral director talking to Mrs. Bergdorf, who, uh, you know, we find out she doesn't have very much money. Uh, and he says, well, why not just have the funeral there? It'll be cheaper than flying his body back. And they have some legionnaires that can be part of a military funeral. And it's cool because the funeral home has this really cool Masonic eye mm. uh, there. Uh, I really like that scene. And so they eventually, you know, the 11 figure this out and they all kind of go to the funeral and they're sitting in a row in one pew there uh, watching the funeral. And then and then Kelly, uh, the assistant at the funeral home, who had kind of talked with Santos uh, earlier, calls Santos and tells him that while they were uh getting the body prepared for the funeral, they found a money bag next to the coffin. So Santos immediately knows where the money is. And um, he also shows up to get the money. And then as the sermon goes on, Danny says, what's that noise? And another person, you hear this kind of sizzling noise, and another person uh, at the funeral says, the deceased is being cremated. As the preacher gives the sermon and says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So they realize that the money is uh, going up in flames, literally. Uh, great twist ending. And then we cut to Sammy in this incredible end sequence, walking down the street, kind of haggard in his uh, funeral suit. He's very, and he's doing a very slowed down, mellow, melancholy, kind of bluesy version of EO11. And then we start to see the camera pan up and the rest of the guys are not very far behind him kind of walking in the street. And then the credits just start rolling over the scene, right? They had and their funeral we, suits in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. It's just such, it's almost like uh, Reservoir Dogs, you know, yeah. uh, 21 years or, or 31 years earlier. And then the, uh, you know, we see Saul Bass's great titles, the end. And that is the end of the film. Yeah. So that's it. All right. Ocean's 11. Well, let's talk about our evaluations then here. So I'll go. Um, look, I think this movie, it's a period piece from another place in time. You know, that mad men t- sort of world, right? Uh, and I'm not sure if it really existed or if it was an aspirational thing, almost like kind of, almost like the MTV Cribs sort of is in maybe the 80s and 90s and beyond. Um, so to me, I always kind of wondering, was this a world that really existed or was this a stylized version of what people hoped, uh, was it, you know, existed. I want to point out a couple things is, you know, the supposed heroes of this, this movie are, are criminals, right? I, I mean, they're robbing casinos, they're robbing the mob, I guess, but they're, they're robbing the casinos. They're misogynist, racist, almost, you know, you, you could say, um, and it's, and it's weird that they, kind of position it that way that these criminals are, are the heroes, but that happens, anti-heroes and all that. Well, Frank's, Frank's, I will say two things about the two things you just said. One is this world was real to him. Yeah. Uh, and and they did party in Vegas all the time and they were on top of the world because he was probably the most popular celebrity 
at least in the United States at this time. And then, you know, his heroes were mobsters too. Yeah. Uh, At least some of them, obviously Ed Kennedy was a hero to him, but uh, the mob was definitely heroes uh, to him. So. Yeah. So the the idea that you have these arch criminals, uh, you know, pulling off this heist, I guess was, was part of that. As, as far as the movie, it's not that great of a movie. You know, I mean, we were talking about how, you know, it's an hour of just kind of phone calls and snappy dialogue. Not a lot happens until they actually uh, get get to Vegas. And it's really more of a vehicle for the Rat Pack to be the Rat Pack, you know. Um, it could have been a really good movie, I think, if the filmmakers and the participants, actually, the actors were more serious you know, we talked about how they were just, you know, carouse all night that you couldn't even get them all on the same set uh, because they were, you know, sleeping off whatever they did the night before. You know, there's only a couple scenes where they're all together for the most part. It's just one or two of them. And that was not because that's the way they wanted it. It's because it, they couldn't get them to all show up. And it's kind of a lackadaisical approach. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, if they were all into it, it could have been a much better movie. You know, I think the result is part of that um, kind of uh, approach. There's a lot of lazy hotel set pieces and, you know, Dean Martin singing the same song 80 times, like we talked about. I think a more sophisticated movie with the kind of technicolor aspects and the music and the stylized stuff could have really been a great movie. And, and I, don't, I can't say it was. Um, the, the racist and misogynist stuff was an element of that time. And, I think that in a weird way, people will find this interesting. It's kind of the last of an era thing. It's it's well crystallized in this movie of what that era was about or, you know, how it was presented. Um, you, I think you're going to talk about this, but, to, you know, there's one person who actually doesn't sing in this movie um, who probably should. And I'll let you handle that. Um, All right. The biggest problem to me is that... Um, Honestly, the biggest criticism I have is that Norman Fell wasn't given a bigger part. <laughs> I mean, just imagine all that witty dialogue with him mugging for the camera like he does as Mr. Roper. And that could Well, you a- have Akim Tamarov, you know, uh, mm. basically hamming it up with this really dated comedy. And you have this brilliant, unknown at the time comedic actor, Norman Fell. Yeah. You know, that you could use for comedy, but they didn't really, I mean, Norman Fell didn't do his first comedic role was Mr. Roper, but he's obviously brilliant in that part. Yeah. And you had this brilliant actor who was not given any, he was just kind of a side man, you know, just kind of a bit player yep. at the time. Yep, yep. Uh, Mr. President, um, do you have anything to say about Norman Fell? Iraq, he had a huge unit. Really? Norman Fell had a huge unit? Iraq, he used to drive golf balls off the roof of the sands. <laughs> really? <laughs> he used to, with, with his penis? With his penis? He to, Iraq, it was impressive. Okay. All right. So All we right. should say, you know, uh, the elephant in the room here is that Frank was also known for this. And there's a famous quote from Ava Gardner where she said, Frank Sinatra weighed 119 pounds, but 19 pounds was cock. That was a famous, <laughs> famous quote. <laughs> it sounds like Norman Fell yeah. had that yeah. in common. Anyway, uh, back, to, back to the fairway, as it were, uh, you know, to use, Mr. President, your, uh, your analogy here. But um, all in all, I'm slightly long on this uh, movie. I, I mean, the look, the vibe, the dialogues, uh, the dialogue in many parts captures something about this era. 
Um, although, you know, like I said, not maybe as well as it could have if they put all the pieces together and tightened up everything, so forth. But I think future generations might find um, the, it, this cool for that reason. I mean, I, I guess I sort of did when I first saw the movie, you know, 20, 25 years or whatever later. Um, and, and now, obviously, you know, we're talking, you know, what, 60 years later, the, you know, since this movie um, yeah. came out. So um, I, I also, just as an aside, kind of find, you know, in this current era that we live, we have a lot of revision, revi- revisionist history, that's the word, in entertainment, you know, where people are kind of rewriting history and putting, you know, people of different, you know, uh, you know, races who in positions of power who wouldn't have been in historical context right, and things right. like that. And I kind of find a lot of that to be ridiculous and almost insulting in a, in a way. I mean, I get the reasons for it, but I do think that future generations will be, um, I hope, you know, more sophisticated where they can consume the culture from the past and understand and interpret it, that it was part of the time. And it's sort of a throwback and they can kind of say, wow, look, Look at Frank Sinatra and look at the way they were talking about and treating women here. And it's part of the interpretation of, of what it was saying about the culture at the time. And it's sort of an atavistic sort of view of all this stuff. And I think it's interesting and, and, and good that that happens. And not everything, you know, we don't have to like clean everything from being um, from having any triggering stuff in it and every triggering element, you know, scrubbed out. I, I think we should trust people to sort of be able to look at this era and say, wow, there's a lot of troubling things here and maybe compare and contrast it. And, you know, I, I just, I I don't know. I have a problem with a lot of the way things are done today. I Um, I do too. Lastly, I would just say that, um, you know, as part of that, I think this, you know, uh, Mr. President, this includes you and your, you know, numerous dalliances with, you know, various strippers and secretaries and interns and all that, which is, not going to be judged well, I have to say, uh, you know, going in the, in the future. But I mean, I think all the rest of it should be evaluated in full and the way that they treated, you know, women in particular should be discussed kind of as we were right in this. And even if it was, uh, you know, more acceptable during their era, I think it's fair to say, well, why was this? What has changed? You know, what was it about this particular time and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I think it's okay to, to leave all this stuff in to talk about it and just be honest and open about like it. What pe- these were people um, who were products of their own eras, and these were things that did happen. And I think it's okay to talk about all that. So all in all, I would say I'm slightly long on this movie just for the the aspect that people can go back and look at this capturing that era and those people and that vibe and that kind of like hipster lounge crooner kind of, you know, them thinking themselves as kings of the world. It's, it captures all that. And I think people in the future will find that somewhat interesting. I'm not super long on it. And I'm only slightly long in, a, in, in the CFX uh, evaluation mode because I think it's um, pretty low on the valuation currently, meaning that a lot of people probably don't even know that there was an original Ocean's Eleven. They just think of the you know, whatever George Clooney crap or whatever about all that stuff. So I'm slightly long from that aspect. And I, I do enjoy this movie and I do enjoy the look and feel of it uh, more than every anything else, I would say. And I even like kicking the head, although I don't need to be kicked in the head with it eight times in the movie. So I'll hand it over to you. 
All right, cool. So before I go into the kind of cultural thing you talked about, because I do have some points of agreement there um, and maybe some different takes, but I just want to evaluate the movie as a film itself, because uh, I think we need to, I, you know, I, I usually start with that. So I'm going to start with what I don't like about the film. So obviously I don't like the misogynism very much. Uh, and that one scene is pretty bad with the with the blackface, uh, the racism. I don't really like that. Um, you know, even though I agree that, you know, just pretending that didn't exist doesn't, I don't, I don't know if that's necessary either. I think it's, it's better to confront that, especially given that in real life, Frank had such a, you know, schizophrenic nature when it came to that stuff. I mean, he fought for Sammy, uh, to get into these casinos and be able to stay there. Um, he obviously was very progressive. Uh, with racial issues, but then he also would be very racist. Yeah. You know, he would tell racist jokes. And that's he wouldn't part get of drunk, his story start... of, of yeah, Frank. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like exactly. It. Yeah. So it's kind of, uh, I don't think we should paper over it for sure. Uh, as far as the comedy aspect of this film, it's pretty much dated and unfunny from a comedic perspective, especially Akim Tamaroff as Spiros Asibos. Uh, it's, in fact, nothing that's supposed to be funny in the movie is actually funny. Like I don't find the Shirley MacLaine scene funny, uh, that funny. Uh, I don't, I, I think a lot of the comedy is really dated. Um, the pacing is really slow and awkward during the first half of the film. And even during the second half, there's a lot of scenes of just, you know, Tony Bergdorf going in the back door. You know, there's not, a, and, and they, there's not really a lot of suspense drummed up with any of that. You would think that this is a risky thing they're doing and they'd want to drum up suspense and they kind of half-heartedly do it. Um, and there's, it's just very repetitious. Obviously the first half with a series of phone calls, uh, you know, is very um, kind of dull except for uh, the dialogue, which has its moments, which I'll get to on the good part. And then the scene with, uh, um, you know, Angie and Frank with B and Danny Ocean is completely unnecessary for the most part. All yeah. of the scenes with Adele and Adele is maybe her scenes are there for suspense, but it doesn't really play that way. And the whole drama with him and his wife, like, who cares? Like, yeah. like he's really kind of not a character at all. It's really not. There's no character development around that. And it's like, why even have that scene? at all like it doesn't seem to really play a part in the film it's almost like you said there's parts that seem to be missing from this right and it and and just as far as the plotting goes yeah we have a whole hour of just getting the team together it's very similar to the blues brothers that way where they get the band together but in the blues brothers you know i, don't, I haven't seen that since like 1980 or something so i don't know how it plays but there's a lot of action during those scenes and in this there isn't it's like phone calls there's a fight here there's one fight but mostly it's just kind of phone calls and one liners now jeff you're not going to be happy with this cuz i remember when the oceans 11 remake came out you were completely pissed off about this and hated it and the whole idea of it but i'm sorry it's a better movie there's just no question. It. I don't think it should be called Ocean's Eleven because it doesn't have the strengths that this movie has. It doesn't share with them. And really, Ocean's Eleven as a thing is kind of a unique... It's a unique thing this film has and a whole vibe this film has that that film doesn't have. But as far as a well-scripted, well-directed heist film, there's no competition. That film is is like 
pretty much exciting from beginning to end. Steven Soderbergh's a way better director of this kind of thing than Lewis Milestone. And it's just works better as a heist film, even if it doesn't have the period charm and all the other things that Ocean's Eleven has and the charisma. And, I just and the, think, the shitty cast of that. I, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you know, a star system, kind of modern star system film with all, all you know, all of these actors and whether you care about them or not. Clooney is kind of, he's always tried to play that angle as the modern kind of, you know, Cary Grant-like guy. Um, and he sometimes does it with success, mostly with Steven Sp Soderbergh's films, Out of Sight, I'm thinking of. Um, but at any rate, it's just a, as far as filmmaking, scripting, direction, it's just more exciting to watch. Um, even though, you know, to be honest, I've only seen it once. And it's not like there's something I had much interest in revisiting. I just thought it was more competently made because this film, again, I don't disagree, like, by the way. I, yeah, I, it's, I, it's more competent as an action film. This yeah. film is more like they had a lot of fun making it. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of thing. a bullshit. It's an yeah. excuse for them to go to Vegas and party and do their shows all night. Right. And kind of I'll talk more about that in, in the good part. But, you know, obviously, Jeff mentioned this. We both thought of this. Frank doesn't sing. I know. You have the greatest singer of the 20th, one of the greatest singers of the 20th century, the most popular singer of his day. He doesn't sing a note. And so he weird. Just, I mean, obviously, I, I really like the E11. I could give a shit about Hole in the Boat. I think it's funny. But but I think um, Frank not singing is a huge gap in this film. It would have been a spectacular scene with him singing. Um, you know, they're Sammy and Dean are Sammy and Dean, uh, you know, but Frank is Frank. He is the star singer of the three, and it's just a huge omission. Uh, in general, the making of the film is just more interesting as, as a timepiece, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And then why do we need 11 dudes? You know, it's just too many. Uh, you know, it's great to see Norman and Fell, Norman Fell, but He's kind of unnecessary. He doesn't really How have but one line in the film. It's got like one or two lines in the film. I mean, I mean, really, most of the guys, it's really mostly about the core rap pack guys. Most of the other guys in the film have just barely any lines. They're they're really not there to actually Henry Silva gets a lot of time, as yeah. does Richard Conti, who Richard Conti, by the way, if you're if you liked his performance in the film, uh, he's a great actor and he's in this great movie called Never the uh, Luck. Never the luck. He's in this great film noir called The Big Combo. It is one of the best film noir films ever. It's so great. I highly recommend it. Look it up. It's a great movie. At any rate, okay, the good the good side. Okay, once the second half of the film kicks in, while there are way too many shots of Victor Conti snaking through doors, it's actually kind of fun to watch just because it's so beautiful to look at. And we do get some charismatic scenes. I love the fluorescent paint scenes, the coffin scene, uh, you know, the the scenes of the party, the New Year's party at the casinos. Uh, some of the dialogue is great. All the main actors are charismatic. Um, you know, I love Cesar Romero. I love uh, Little Hey Hey and M-O-N-Y. <laughs> These never get old for me. Um, it's It's kind of fun. You could tell that a lot of that was improvised. Uh, while that's a weakness of the film, it's also kind of its one strength is this dialogue. Uh, again, the Technicolor <laughs> is amazing. What's wrong with the little hey, hey? I think I'm going to adopt that in my own life. And the twist ending is actually pretty fucking great. 
I think it's a great idea. And I think that's why Soderbergh picked it up for like three movies. And then there's Ocean's 8, which I never saw, which is the female version. Um, you know, it's been done to death. Leave it alone, guys. Uh, obviously, the premise had enough uh, interest to get them to make it again. But as far as this, as far as the movie, my evaluation, um, I think it really captures an era where it's it's kind of, again, I have like a, a degree of separation from this era because, again, my parents were not into Frank Sinatra. And this seems so divorced because this was the era where Elvis Presley started to chip away things and the, the Beatles just annihilated it. I mean, yeah. it just it just everything changed with them. And the kind of hippie movement of the 60s really just kind of buried this era. And it was almost it's almost like archaeology. Yeah, you know, watching totally. this movie, digging up a bygone era, and it captures Frank at his absolute peak right before his kind of fall from grace, uh, when he just became no longer the king of the world, you know, yeah. and it's really interesting from that perspective. And I do think there are elements that lasted. I mean, obviously, they've made documentaries and movies about the Rat Pack. Do you remember that? Um, I watched part of this on YouTube. It's just awful. This 1998 HBO movie called The Rat Pack, it had Ray Liotta as Frank Sinatra. I, uh, I saw I've seen clips from it. I couldn't watch it. Joe Joe Mon, Montaigne as uh, Dean Martin, who's yeah. pretty good, actually. And then uh, Don Cheadle as Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> and uh, William Peterson, uh, you know, the guy from the CSI shows uh, as Jack Kennedy. It's it's really bad. It's excruciating. But you could tell there was a fascination with this, especially in the Tarantino 90s. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have movies like Goodfellas that recall this exact period. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the Godfather movies uh, have tons of references to Frank Sinatra and JFK, um, or just to Las Vegas and the and the crime there, you know. And and even Reservoir Dogs, the iconic scene of them walking in the suits, is just lifted directly from this movie. So, as a cultural touchstone, I think it's really interesting. And it's not like I don't enjoy watching parts of it. It's it's kind of immersive in its way, even though I think screenplay wise and direction wise it's kind of a clunker um it's got like some great things about it so i'm gonna kind of go neutral on it i'm not gonna short it but i'm not gonna really go long on it i'm gonna take the coward's way out and go neutral so that's that's the way i sit with oceans 11 all right it was fun to really fun to revisit and i'm still kind of wallowing the world of frank sinatra with that book it's just it just his story is absolutely fascinating so, all right. Well, there you have it. Uh, I went slightly long, uh, slip is neutral on Ocean's Eleven, the 1960 original uh, version. So that'll do it uh, for us. Uh, we'll bid farewell. Uh, Mr. President, we'll bid farewell to you as well and let you go back to wherever you're at. And let's have Sammy uh, play us out here. Show me a man without a dream. And I'll show you a man that's dead, real dead. Once I had me a dream, but that dream got kicked in the head. Dream dead. Some judges have to say, I'm putting you away For four score years Plus seven In the meantime 
era. All the head stuff is in poor taste. 